the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. I mean, the notion that you could cut respiratory infections, there's no study in the world that shows that masks work that well. We've gotten so used to the masks that we don't realize there's a large volume of people that are wearing it, not because of COVID, because they're criminals. You'll get some people, mostly the vulnerable, the elderly and those with underlying conditions, will fall by the wayside. They'll get infected, they'll get hospitalized, and some will die. I mean, look at what's happened. I sometimes underestimate it because I stop thinking about it, but I'm sure you don't. the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod you'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode an entire back catalog of bonus episodes and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism at your local bookstore pre-ordered Jules's new book coming in January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I'm really excited today. Uh, actually, well, I'm feeling nearly as much excitement as I am dread. Repetition. Yes. Because, you know, this is the first time since Abby and Jules joined the show in September of 2022 that we have all been on a recording together all at once. Hell yeah. Yay! (laughs) And I'm feeling dread, you know, but also excitement, (laughs) because today we are here to record our annual COVID year in review episode. So without any further ado, welcome to COVID year four. Yeah. I'm Beatrice Adler-Bolton, as usual, and I'm here with all of my Death Panel co-hosts today. First, we have Artie Veerkant. Hello. Artie will be leading us today. Uh, This episode is a massive lift, so thank you in advance, Artie. Next, we have Phil Rocco. Hey. And Abby Cardis. Hello. And finally, Jules Gilpeterson. Hi. So we have a lot to get to. You know, I'm always kind of in a state of numb shock when we start these COVID year in review episodes. It's kind of this like overwhelming feeling where time is just fucking with you. So, (sighs) you know... Why don't we just dive right in, Artie? I'll pass it to you. Okay. Welcome to COVID year four, everybody. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, and so I think before I get into, if you've heard one of these before, uh, you know, I'm going to probably do a timeline. That is the case for this year. Before I get into that, though, let's just start with those words. COVID Mm. year four. Mm. (sighs) And I can't. I kind of can't say anything different than I have in other years, which is that it both feels like it's been 10 years and three months. And I can't believe that it can feel that way for so long of a period of time. And that's kind of what I'm struggling with this time around. I mean, this time around feels different in the sense that, and I'm actually kind of fascinated not having known how you put this together, Artie, but uh, this actually does feel like the first year in which the entire apparatus of following the pandemic sort of social prostheses Mm -hmm. have been uh Mm -hmm. entirely gone yeah and so like it's i i feel like it must have been more work for you to put together just the Mm. you know 
all of the documentation this year. You have intuited correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately. Um, Yeah. I mean, if we want to try and make one silver lining, I guess we don't have to follow along the like spasms of, you know, Atlantic think pieces uh, from (laughs) from Beltway people, uh, you know, just kind of guiding us along as a kind of, you know, funeral dirge. Uh, Sorry, that's very macabre. (laughs) I kind of miss those spasms. I know. I was just thinking that as I was saying it. (laughs) Yeah. Like we've been talking about this a lot. um, And I've been thinking about this a lot. Like those spasms were kind of like the whetstone that I could sharpen myself against. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, like without that, I have felt I don't know. I feel pretty adrift in like the COVID coverage this year. So it'll be very interesting to see what <laughs> Artie has put together. Yeah. yeah, we'll we'll return to that point because that's actually kind of pretty similar to something that I'm going to mm. kind of bring in as we're as we're getting towards the end. I guess the one thing that I would just say too about COVID year four, I mean, it is it is pretty staggering just to think about those words in themselves. It's also just really interesting to think like as B was kind of saying, it's you know feels like ten years, but also feels like three months. But really, I mean, four years, you know, from let's say like when it was first discovered, fall twenty nineteen, until now, those four years, uh, it's actually just when you really think about it, that's such a short amount of time too yeah like that's actually a really in the grand scheme of things that is such a remarkable uh remarkably short timeline in terms of especially how quickly it's been normalized so in any case uh i'm gonna get started first i just have a couple quick things that i wanted to say uh right out the gate which is if you haven't heard one of these before so this as b mentioned this is our kind of uh covid year in review this is the 2023 edition Uh, in a sort of informal series of episodes where we try to recap the year in COVID normalization, or to put it another way, where we try to chronicle what we have been calling the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. In other Mm -hmm. words, how rhetoric, major policy decisions, the redistribution or termination of resources, and various actions of U.S. government officials have led to a premature notion that the pandemic is over. Even as COVID continues to spread, people continue to die and people continue to get long COVID. Um, So this series is comprised of this and a few other episodes, which I'll put links to in the description, but I'll also mention just briefly right here at the top. So COVID Year 2 was released in December 2021 and was explicitly focused on correcting a notion that was, I think, much, much more prevalent at the time uh, that it was recorded, at least, um, which is the idea that Biden had been doing a super good job on COVID (laughs) and that he couldn't be blamed for the virus running rampant. Um, COVID year three was released last year, December 2022, and ran through what was a very aggressive year of COVID normalization. That one also had an offshoot, uh, kind of second full conversation, which was called How Liberals Killed Masking, that also kind of went back into 2021 stuff that was released around the same time, looking at how the Biden administration had uh, kind of put policies uh, or kind of undone policies of universal masking throughout the United States and uh, led to that kind of normalization of anti-mask sentiment among liberals. You'll notice there's no COVID year one, uh, or at least no episode by that exact name. In 2020, we hadn't uh, come up with the idea to do a year-end recap yet, I suppose. Um, (laughs) Though, uh, when we decided to do COVID year two, we did name it after an earlier episode, COVID year zero, Mm. uh, which was released on, uh, and this gave me a sense of vertigo to look back up, March 15th, 2020. What? What? March 15th. We recorded that one then? 
Um, so that one isn't a recap episode. Uh, instead, it was something we recorded as we all had, you know, gone into isolation. Uh, we talked through what we knew and didn't know about COVID at the time. That one features our old co-host, Vince Patty, as mm-hmm. well. Um, I haven't revisited that episode in a while, but my memory of it is that we called it COVID Year Zero because at the time, a lot of politicians and media figures in the U.S. were saying, you know, COVID's going to be over in two or three weeks by or whatever. Easter or something. Yeah, by Easter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were like, yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Well, let's, let's see some evidence of that. Um, we spent a lot of time in 2020 being like, hey, guys, if you look at the history of past plagues, uh, it like, might take a while. So anyway. Hey, guys, we're pretending to know uh, the answers to questions that uh we haven't even asked actually (laughs) yeah um this year we also have uh something of a companion episode so last week we released a discussion where we talked about how concrete data on covid from tests to deaths death statistics has become increasingly abstracted and harder to come by over the course of the last few years, Mm -hmm. um, leaving us knowing less than we ever have about the true state of things. So if you haven't heard that, uh, that's kind of like a a preamble to this conversation. Anyway, without further ado, COVID year four. Mm. This year's episode has a lot of moving parts, but I'll share some of the big themes before we get to the timeline. 2023 and the COVID response was the year the Biden administration really turned most of the lights out. With so much of its pandemic policies, from public health protections to social safety net supports and funding already clawed back by the end of 2022, this year was the year they came for really anything that remained. Uh, The COVID public health emergency was sunsetted in May 2023, which many people then conflated with the end of the pandemic itself. Millions of people have been kicked off of Medicaid, about 11 million by now as of this recording. Masking was dropped even in healthcare settings, um, and a lot more happened that we're going to talk about in the next couple hours. Meanwhile, COVID is very much still around, and around all the time. It's not merely that we have waves and seasons of COVID or something like that, even though that's how it's often talked about. Um, My favorite illustration of this comes from two headlines that I want to contrast right at the top of the show that I will be mentioning again, I think, when we get to the part in the timeline. But so, for example, here's a headline from Fortune magazine from July 28th as a summer surge was underway in the U.S. Quote, has COVID-19 become a summer illness? Cases and hospitalizations are on the rise again. And to contrast this again with uh, this headline from a few months later, October 25th in The New York Times, Again, October 25th, quote, it's COVID season. What are the new rules for staying safe? So anyway, I think these are fascinating because if you look at the metrics, it's kind of always COVID season. It is. Um, Yeah, it's always COVID season. uh, But by the headline in October, you know, it's basically the same wave as being reported on in July. Um, But I think we're so far into this idea of the end of the pandemic now that these totally contiguous surges uh, are portrayed as anomalies. It's not a wave. Uh, It's an uptick. It's a looming uptick. That damn word. A little bump. I mean, let's be real. Like, the way that everyone conceptualizes illness and time has been so thoroughly fucked (laughs) up by the media (laughs) representation of COVID. Mm, It's like, I think we're going to see this kind of temporal minimization of disease just, like, applied to so many things going forward. Mm, Yeah. So I'm going to start the timeline now um, because we've got plenty to review. Just a final disclaimer. uh, This is by no means exhaustive. There's plenty we either won't be getting into today or that we'll only be addressing in brief. What we will be getting into has been kind of selected to tell at least one story about what's happened in the last year. 
So part one, I think as is our custom at this point, uh, we're going to start our timeline for the last year, not in 2023, um, but in the fall of 2022, which should let us get some context of what was happening as COVID's third year came to a close. Um, It's also, I think, necessary because one of the things we tend to do in these year end episodes is focus on events that we have some more distance from um, so we can make connections we might not have thought of in the moment. Um, But also because as we get towards the end of these episodes, I tend to put slightly less details into more recent months because we've often just talked about the events that uh, occurred on the show. So this will take into account things that were that kind of had less detail in COVID year three. This year, we're actually going to start a little earlier in the fall than usual, because when you look at what we were all talking about at the beginning of the fall, it's striking just how quickly things have advanced. Um, So it's fall 2022. Mitigations. None. Really? Mm. Mask Mm -hmm. mandates. Haven't heard that name in years. Uh, However, (laughs) (laughs) vaccines and treatments are still free for now, Um, though at the same time, a program that HHS had been uh, health and human services had been running to pay for COVID treatment for the uninsured, including and especially the cost of hospitalization uh, was no longer around, having been unceremoniously killed in March 2022. Um, There still isn't anything like it anymore. That's just gone, along with almost every other piece of the public health emergency related social safety net expansions like expanded unemployment insurance. Um, That program that paid for things like hospitalization for uninsured people is so thoroughly forgotten, in fact, that it's almost like it never happened, except it did happen, unlike things that never materialized during the public health emergency, like universal paid sick leave or COVID specific OSHA protections for workers, or, you know, the list could go vaccine on. Vaccine outreach program. Single payer. I don't know. Yeah, vaccine mm-hmm. outreach. Um, mm-hmm. uh, our COVID data picture is beyond murky, as we talked about last week. Um, testing and vaccination centers are almost universally closed. This means a couple of things. Uh, One, there isn't good reporting anymore on how many actual COVID cases there are. Uh, The best we have is wastewater data, which shows alarming spikes, but wastewater data is only available in the few areas of the country that actually collect that data. Um, Testing by fall 2022 is almost exclusively the domain of at-home rapid tests, which, while convenient, have a couple of big issues. (laughs) The first issue with at-home tests is reporting. There's just no way of knowing how many people are testing positive anymore because the tests are done in private. The second issue is the cost. Uh, Rapid tests typically cost $20 or more. They're supposed to be covered by private insurance, but as everyone knows, supposed to be covered by insurance comes with a lot of asterisks in the United States, uh, which can sometimes include a lot of administrative burdens that decrease use. Um, I don't know why I said sometimes. Typically do. Always do. In the fall of 2022, the Biden administration responds to pressure over this exact issue by putting up a new round of free mail order COVID tests, as they also recently did this year. Uh, But they didn't bother to do this until December 15th, the very end of the year. So from December 15th, anyone who went to covidtest.gov could get a grand total of four home rapid tests um, per address or per household. Uh, That's not a lot, especially when you consider the third issue with at-home COVID tests, uh, rapid tests, which is that false negatives are common. So common, in fact, the FDA guidance on how to use the test properly is to test once, test a second time within 48 hours. And if both of those are negative, test yet a third time shortly after that in order to get accurate results. So effectively, on December 15th, the Biden administration says each household is entitled to about one and one third at home rapid tests. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I love all the people that clapped and were like, yes, look at what Biden is doing. Well, they should be sending them. They should send a lot more. I know, but when you lay it out relative to the actual usage of the tests and how far that gets one family, right? It was a ridiculously small, insultingly small amount. Um, So all this is to say, as we've said time and time again, as of, you know, let's say mid-2022, we simply have no fucking idea how many COVID cases are happening anymore. Um, that being said, as we'll talk about in a little bit, that's not to say we don't have any data in fall 2022 until October, for example, uh, CDC is still doing daily reporting on the number of positive COVID tests, uh, that it is capturing, except on October 6th, the CDC announces it will no longer report daily COVID cases, uh, moving to weekly reporting instead. Um, Mm. this will become a theme. In terms of normalization of COVID or what we've called the sociological production at the end of the pandemic, there are a couple other events we have to keep in mind. Uh, we'll only run a, through a couple of the big hits just for to make sure we all have the context. I promise this will be relevant later. Um, but September 19th, Joe Biden tells 60 Minutes the pandemic is over. Uh, quote, the pandemic is over. The context <laughs> is he's giving an interview at the Detroit Auto Show, and he goes on to say, quote, if you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everyone seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it, unquote. First of many raises of my blood pressure. Yeah. This you folks look wonderful from here. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course, as we pointed out at the time, his administration has quite a lot to do with why people were not wearing masks at that event. Um, so that's what we call a tautology, I suppose. Yes. Um, Please see our episode, How Liberals Killed Masking. Yep. Speaking of masking, one thing I think we only maybe briefly touched on in uh, COVID year three uh, on September 23rd, four days after Biden's comment at the Detroit Auto Show, the CDC quietly updates its masking guidance late on a Friday afternoon, also known as the best time to bury things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they update their guidance to clarify they no longer recommend universal masking in healthcare settings. Um, this will be very important to our timeline this year. As far as the discourse around masking as a whole, it's bleak. By the end of 2022, as we've documented elsewhere, the Biden administration position, as well as general liberal sentiment, is more or less in line with, to quote David Leonhardt, as he famously put it, masks work, but mandates don't. We've done some episodes, including recently, on why this is wrong uh, and why a policy of one-way masking is not sufficient, um, uh, you know, a sufficient way to deal with a population-level health threat. Uh, so I'm not going to go into too much detail to rebut that, but again, I'll put like a link in the description. Um, I will say that as of fall 2022, the Biden administration does start to shrug off the utility of universal masking much more blatantly. That's not to say that their many guidance changes over the years weren't blatant, but to say that their tone is more explicit. This is perhaps best illustrated by a comment that White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Ashish Jha says in a Philadelphia Inquirer live stream on December 15th of 2022 that, quote, the notion that you could cut respiratory infections... There is no study in the world that shows that masks work that well. He is You're such n- <laughs> a fucking clown. <laughs> such a fucking clown. Uh, quote, you're never going to get the kind of benefit from mandatory year-round masking as you would from making substantial improvements to indoor air quality somewhere in Which the ether. Which totally doing. And you can only Joseph ever Allen, pick one. Take me out to dinner, please. Like I was just going to say somewhere out there, Joseph Allen is clapping. Um, uh, so again, you know, first of all, this is wrong and a hell of a thing for the White House COVID czar to say. Um, 
Second, though, just to allow myself to be a little glib, um, I guess Ashish Shah doesn't read the New England Journal of Medicine because his comments came just a couple weeks after the journal released a big study by, uh, among others, Ellie Murray, <laughs> uh, a former guest of ours, uh, and a number of, again, other co-authors, showing pretty definitively that mask mandates work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing that we can say definitively about what we've learned from the pandemic. Yeah, there's no way Ashish Jaw reads the New England Journal of Medicine. I know. Like just allow me to be there's petty. Simply no <laughs> <You know>? way. <laughs> um, what else? Uh, in the fall, the Biden administration and the media uh, was also leaning in on a reframing of the fall as a catch-all respiratory disease season. Uh, the term triple demic was thrown around a lot, <laughs> yeah. uh, as it has been this year. Um, as we said at the time, and to borrow a specific point from Abby, actually, Abby, you said something last fall to the effect that uh, the idea of syndemics, in other words, multiple mm-hmm. overlapping epidemics or pandemics is pretty common in epidemiologic literature. What isn't common and what was novel was the idea of a syndemic being invoked in order to minimize the severity of all three constituent <laughs> epidemics. Um, so... Uh, to move off from the Biden administration for the moment, this idea of the triple-demic overlaps with one of the other big pieces of discourse swirling in the media in fall 2022, which is, of course, the idea of immunity debt. Mm. If that sounds familiar or you feel like you've been hearing a lot about that phrase recently, uh, I'll just say, remember this concept as we'll certainly be returning to it much later. Um We didn't get into this too much in last year's year in review because we had just done a whole episode about the concept of immunity debt. Um, But I'm just going to summarize the concept and its history really, really briefly, and we can maybe return to it much later. Um, I'll read from what I think is an indicative description. So this is an article on CNN's website from October 28th, 2022, describing the idea of immunity debt and uncritically repeating it as truth. Quote, The measures that helped keep us safe from COVID-19 over the past two and a half years, lockdowns, physical distancing, wearing masks, washing hands, also helped limit the spread of other viruses. As people return to school and work and take off their masks, those viruses, including respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and flu, uh, are back in full force. That immunity gap or immunity debt from the last few years is probably behind the unprecedented early surge in RSV infections this year, scientists say. And it has thrown other seasonal respiratory viruses out of whack around the world, unquote. I love how Protestant it is, which I may, I might have even said on the show before, but I love, I love this. Like you're going to pay for it someday. We love debt here. Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't suffer now, you'll suffer later. Exactly. Um, just to be clear, as many people have said, said at the time, said, uh, you know, are saying now, even if there's, uh, there's like, uh, pretty widely circulated like financial times piece from the fall of last year that people are also reposting now uh this is not how the immune system works this is not how it works this is instead something that is i think best understood on ideological level yeah that's basically taking like the idea of how your muscles build themselves and applying it to your (laughs) immune system just a good cautionary tale about the uses of metaphor (laughs) scientific discourse Parts uh, of the body uh, that are different, like work differently. Work differently. Did you know Who knew? That? Yeah. yeah. You can't skip flu day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, on an ideological level, you can see where this is going, uh, though, which is what I think is the most important thing about immunity debt to say really explicitly, which is, first of all, it is a very blatant rhetorical cudgel against the idea of lockdowns or masking or really doing anything 
about the pandemic. Um, longtime listeners will no doubt uh, see, probably already know, even the connections that can be made to the ideas of the Great Barrington Declaration, the so-called focus protection strategy, stuff like that. Um, and in terms of social reproduction, it does two things. Uh, first, it suggests we did too much, not too little to stop COVID. And second, um, by extension, one can assume the takeaway is supposed to be that if we did too much to combat COVID, then if another pandemic happens in the future, which it almost certainly will, we should all remember that lockdowns hurt us in the long run or something, uh, or that masking hurt us in the long run, and we should all not do it. We'll get we'll get back to that because people say this explicitly. The yeah. next time. I, I also just want to say before we move on that like there is a function of individual stigma that this carries as well yeah. too. Um, mm-hmm. I think further stigmatizing people who are still taking, you know, COVID precautions for whatever reason as like debtors, you know, as people yeah. that are like deficient and that owe the rest of us something or like, owe mm-hmm. some, some payment to the great Moloch, I guess, of like, uh, <laughs> of, of respiratory viruses or something. I, I just wanted to flag that before we move on. It's a very yeah, good I mean, point, like, Abby. It's 19th century eugenics, actually, yeah. you know, like <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah, if we if we do anything to intervene and mitigate the spread of disease, we're messing with nature's plan for us, which will you know <laughs> yeah. ultimately always cull from the human species. Such a rosy picture. I know immunity, immunity pauperism, yeah. <laughs> a huge social problem. No, it's oof, yeah. Well, it reminds me of that Charles Darwin screed where he goes out against um, vaccination, saying that it's mm-hmm. going to potentially like ruin. Um, mm-hmm. All of the progress made by the human race during the early years of the Industrial Revolution to like protect people from, you know, very basic things like smallpox. Yeah. No, he could have worked um, at the Biden administration. <laughs> um, the other final thing to know about immunity debt that I just want to put in here is that uh, it is a novel term introduced into this pandemic. Um, <laughs> it's not a pre-existing yeah. thing in scientific mm-hmm. literature, uh, though there are some... Uh, that I don't listen to that claim it's a similar idea to immunity gap, uh, which is something that is a distinct idea, actually. And so Um, different. But as far as I can tell, it's an idea that was introduced in one paper in France in spring 2021, and then it filtered its way into popular discourse after that paper was picked up by the Wall Street Journal uh, for a piece that ran in June 2021. So ideological to its core. Anyway. Mm. On October 20th, 2022, Pfizer tells an investor call that when the Biden administration stops purchasing vaccines for the public and kicks them to the regular healthcare market, Pfizer intends to charge between $110 and $130 per dose for its vaccine. Um, This is something that's bad enough in and of itself, but will also be important later. Moderna would follow suit, uh, announcing on January 9th that it will also seek a price between $110 and $130 per dose for its vaccine. Um, just a couple other things we need to know about the fall. We lose Avusheld, a monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID. Um, research shows essentially that COVID's evolutionary drift uh, spurred on, I would add, by the, as we mentioned earlier, Beyblade strategy, the uh, let, let, it rip. Rip, let it rip strategy. Um Spurred on by that, COVID's evolutionary drift had gone so far that Evusheld was no longer effective in propping up the immune response to strains that were circulating now and then. Um, and now 
basically Avusheld was the last, like a, a number of other monoclonal antibody treatments had already fallen and Avusheld was the last to go. We also got some long expected sort of confirmation that repeat infection of COVID compounds risks um, from COVID, not just in the sense of having a bad or deadly acute infection, um, but risk of developing long COVID or various types of organ damage. Um, we're almost done with the main contacts for the end of 2022, but before we move on to the bigger picture, we would be remiss not to mention a masterful hit piece on COVID organizing that ran in the New Yorker at the very end of the year, December 28th, oh, 2022. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Uh, who <laughs> could forget? I'm talking, of course, about the New Yorker's article, The Case for Wearing Masks Forever mm -hmm. by Emma Green, the author mm -hmm. of another piece we talked about, I believe, in COVID year two, which was called The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. For those who don't remember this, uh, the title, uh, quote, The Case for Wearing Masks Forever, um, is supposed to be a joke. Uh, the joke is supposed to be something along the lines of look at these dysgenic freaks who still want us to mask, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the piece itself is a hit piece on the specific COVID advocacy group, the People's CDC, but it hits broad enough that it's really supposed to be a takedown of political speech about COVID as a whole. Uh -huh. uh, we had a whole episode on this called The Case for COVID Gaslighting Forever, which I would recommend if you missed it. Um, but I'll just briefly read some highlights. Um, so this is from the piece in The New Yorker from uh, the very end of December. Uh, the group has, quote, made it their mission to distribute information about the pandemic, what they see as real information, as opposed to what's circulated by the actual CDC. They talk about, quote unquote, science, um, like science isn't scare quotes. They talk about science as proof that the member's position is correct, when in reality, they're making a case for how they wish the world to be and selecting scientific evidence to build their narrative. It's a kind of moralistic scientism, a belief that science infallibly validates lefty moral sensibilities. Yeah. OK, but like, w let's talk about the the real CDC, though, <laughs> you know, like follow. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Actually, just cut this out. I'm, I'm not trying to get this mad about the CDC this early. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, just to make sure that I read this uh, on this episode, too, who could forget another uh, thing buried later in the article, quote, all the talk from the group about empire building and capital accumulation, a key component of Marxist economic theory, <laughs> made me wonder whether, quote unquote, the people in the people's CDC are those people. Um, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not affiliated with people's CDC, but you got to send us some of us. Uh, some of us are those people. Uh, filthy communists or whatever. <laughs> I know my um, my initial reaction to that headline, you know, like the liberals who can't quit masking. I guess that's the earlier one was like, I'm not a liberal. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not a fucking liberal. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, this is all very funny. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because by the end of 2022, advocacy around COVID had gone from a thing that your stock liberal could easily get behind to, I guess, something of a punchline. Uh, when people talk about what Biden has or hasn't done in office, uh, we can, I think, never forget about this in particular. Because um, if you think about that in the span of about two years from Biden's inauguration in January 2021 until the end of 2022, COVID went from, you know, something that liberals were furious at the bad orange man for fucking up on to something where when you point out that their guy, Biden, is doing active harm by undoing COVID protections, liberals will you know, really write a whole article about how you're moralizing them. So, you know, obviously that process didn't take a whole two years, but this seems significant to me. 
So, uh, all right. We have one last thing uh, to look at for December, and then we'll move on to the actual, you know, 2023. But I should note that in the calendar year 2022, according to the CDC's data, um, which I'll mention this a couple more times over the course of this, most of our data is going to be drawn from CDC, but we should assume that these are probably undercounts. But according to CDC data, about 250,000 people, 243,936 died of COVID just in 2022. Um, so this brings us to the end of 2022 and quite possibly the most important development. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm just going to basically blend components of the end of 2022 with the beginning of January 2023 here because there's a lot of overlap and things happened quite quickly. Um, throughout 2022, for all of the normalization and downplaying of COVID, the U.S. government still had in effect a public health emergency, often shorthanded as PHE, tied to COVID. This meant a few things. First and foremost, uh, it was the biggest public signpost that we are all still indeed in a pandemic. But it also meant that the federal government was still on the hook for paying for all COVID vaccines and treatments. The public health emergency also spelled out certain data reporting requirements that we'll touch on briefly uh, later that helped us get a picture of what's going on with COVID. Um, and there are some other things, but uh, you know, finally, a few of the remaining pandemic social safety net programs were tied to the end of the public health emergency, most notably the Medicaid continuous enrollment requirement, which is the policy that was ensuring millions of people got to keep some form of health insurance coverage over the course of the public health emergency. Now, let's say you're the Biden administration and you want to wrap up the public health emergency. You've got a couple of problems. Let's say you want to end the public health emergency in part because a big part of your pitch for your administration was that you wanted to end the pandemic. There's your first problem. You haven't ended the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> you just kind of arranged things so that people think that the pandemic isn't their problem anymore uh, or a problem for them anymore. The other problem is all the things that are part of the public health emergency for COVID that some of the public may have taken for granted about the pandemic itself or the pandemic response itself. For example, the COVID vaccines and therapeutics or antivirals being free, that's good. People like that. Um, it has a material effect in the world, right? Um, it definitely makes it so that more people use them than would otherwise, um, though it's not perfect, because to get them, you still have to interact with some other element of the U.S. healthcare system, which is entirely pay to play and built to squeeze profit out of a stone. So you're still deterring a lot of people from using the tools, as they're called, mm -hmm. um, just by virtue of the design of the healthcare system in and of itself mm -hmm. um, as, mm -hmm. a, as a capitalist healthcare system. But as long as the tools, quote unquote, are free, it seems like the federal government is at least a little more active or more serious about COVID. It appears, right? Um, you know, look, they care enough that they made it free. Well, you know, free for only a while, as we'll see. The other problem is that you've got millions and millions of people whose healthcare coverage depends on either the public health emergency staying in place or on Medicaid expansion being made permanent. If you're the Biden administration or Democrats generally and you're thinking about ending the public health emergency, I don't know, tomorrow or 60 days from now, you have to be thinking, if I do this, the message is clear. You run the risk of having all the headlines about this read some variation of, you know, Joe Biden announces the end of the public health emergency, putting the health care of millions in jeopardy. That's not great. So mm -hmm. what do you do? 
apparently, you take these two things that are inconvenient to what you want to do politically and you try to deal with them one at a time as if they were separate issues rather than dealing with them all at once. Um, even better, you let Democrats in Congress do some of that work of decoupling them for you. Um, there's some good reporting on this, and the one I've referenced most often in the last year is a piece from Politico from December 19th, 2022, called Why Democrats Warmed to Severing Medicaid Eligibility from the COVID Public Health Emergency. Um, while this piece doesn't spell out a role the Biden administration itself played in the move, we do know that the administration was meeting frequently with members of Congress about things related to the public health emergency. Ashish Jha spoke quite a bit in 2022 about meeting with Congress toward kicking COVID care to the private market, uh, which we talked about in COVID year three. And uh, one thing that is mentioned in this report that adds an interesting wrinkle uh, is the following. I'm just going to read this brief quote and then pause to let you all have a collective groan. Quote, Republicans pushing for a deal on Medicaid have also been reminding Democrats that their original Build Back Better legislative package, which ultimately became the Inflation Reduction Act and passed this year after being significantly whittled down, included a wind down of the public health emergency as a pay for. Mm. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. it is really, really important to think about the administration's you know, what what seemed like an absurd position for an administration that sort of ran on expanding, uh, you know, expanding, quote unquote, like access to health care to, yeah. uh, you know, preside over this gigantic, you know, what is it now? 11 million person unwinding. But it is important. And I, I think we've talked about this on previous episodes that they didn't, number one, have a, you know, a plan for what a different Medicaid expansion would look like Two, right. if they were going to you know, retain this aura of, you know, fiscal, uh, you know, restraint, which, which was absurd because of the scale of the inflation reduction act as a spending package. It's like, don't the fiscal restraint is not your brand here and it's not even what people want. So <laughs> why bother even trying to do that? But third, um, I think one thing that undermined would have undermined anything that they, they had tried is that they had, uh, you know, kind of one of the counter arguments that you get when you talk about unwinding is that, Oh, well they, you know, you have the, uh, are there not exchanges are the, you know, are the exchanges <laughs> not open? Um, and, and it's like, that's, that's what they focused, you know, any sort of change to the ACA, uh, you know, over the past year and the inflation reduction act was focused on the, the exchanges piece of the law and the tax credits. Yep. Absolutely. In any case, so they get their wish, I suppose, uh, and the Biden administration gets one less thing to worry about in terms of the potential political fallout from announcing an end to the public health emergency uh, in that before the end of the year, as part of the end of year budget bill, states are informed that they can begin disenrolling people from Medicaid, begin what is known as the unwinding on April 1st. We all know what's happened as a result, and we're going to be talking about it today also. Uh, but just to note that the consequences of this were already very well known. Groups like the Urban Institute and Kaiser Family Foundation, I guess they're now called KFF, but I cannot bring myself to just say KFF. Mm. And Kaiser Family Foundation had already published estimates that between 15 and 24 million people would lose their coverage, their Medicaid coverage, because of this um, during the unwinding. Um, and as we all know, as we've mentioned already today, 11 million people already have. So that's the end of 2022. 
end of part one. And I'm going to roll right into part two, if that's cool. Yeah, let's mm -hmm. mainline it. Okay, part two. 2023, pre-May 11th. 2023, before the end of the public health emergency. So this brings us to January 2023, January of this year. The Biden administration, like usual, doesn't miss a beat, starting the year off with a lot of activity. In early January, as they renew the public health emergency for another 60 days, they start speaking to the press about how this renewal will likely be one of the last. Here is how this is characterized in Politico from January 10th. Quote, even as COVID hospitalizations and deaths climb once again, Biden officials privately concede the administration sees dwindling benefits in justifying the continuation of the health emergency especially for a public that's largely learned to live with the virus. Again, once again, this is what is known as a tautology. Um, uh, it continues, quote, Biden health officials stressed that the COVID response would remain a top priority for the administration, no matter the status of the emergency designation. Sure. The president has continued to urge aides to do whatever is necessary to keep control of the virus, viewing it as integral to the health of both the nation and his own presidency. <laughs> but, quote, aides are weighing whether to begin a wind down of the White House COVID team in the spring or summer months following the anticipated end of the health emergency or to keep it intact through the end of the year. Two people with knowledge of the matter said, unquote. We'll all be familiar by now with the Biden administration's stance of pretending it doesn't have much agency over the pandemic, uh, even as it makes decisions that actively <laughs> shape its perceived severity and the idea of whether the pandemic is still going on or not. Um, but there's one comment from January uh, to this effect, though, that is particularly rich. On January 12th, the Washington Post publishes a piece on how COVID has overburdened the already stripped down capitalist healthcare system. Uh, they talked to Ashish Jha about it. Quote, White House COVID-19 response coordinator Ashish Jha said the American healthcare system may not be able to withstand the continued viral onslaught, <laughs> straining the system's ability to care for other serious illnesses. Quote, a uh, quote from Ashish Jha, I'm worried that we are going to have four years, our health system being pretty dysfunctional, not being able to take care of heart attack patients, not being able to take care of cancer patients, not being able to take care of the kid who's got appendicitis because we're going to be so overwhelmed with respiratory viruses for three or four months a year, Jaw told the Washington Post. He described a scenario in which the typical winter logjam of patients begins much earlier than usual in August or September because of the coronavirus. It's a darker scenario than the administration has portrayed in the past and one Jaw said most Americans have yet to realize. Quote, I just think people have not appreciated the chronic cost because we have seen this as an acute problem, Jaw said. We have no idea how hard this is going to make life for everybody for long periods of time. Unquote. Well, then yeah, why I can't imagine you... why we don't know that. Yeah, why didn't you do your <laughs> fucking job then? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I remember talking about this on an episode, and I think I even said at the time, like, this is the biggest, we're all trying to find the guy who did this mm -hmm. of all yep. time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, this is why it's so important to not anthropomorphize viruses. Mm -hmm. Okay, because what we see in that quote, and in Jaws' own language that's quoted in that piece is that COVID is doing the onslaught, right? That respiratory viruses are doing the pressure on the healthcare system. But viruses, independent of 
when they enter our bodies and take over our own cells are not alive. Like this is not some organism that acts with decisive agency, right? Like none of this is anything that the virus (laughs) is doing. It is all what we are doing because we as the hosts are the virus's mechanism for doing the only thing that it knows how to do, which is to replicate and evolve as it replicates. So the the viral evolution, the vaccine escape, you know, the the ways that COVID has, you know, persisted, right, despite all of the Biden administrations ignoring it. Like the idea that any of this is the result of the virus, right, which is exactly how the language points us to in so many ways that we discuss it, just completely takes the idea that like the way that we interact with each other, the decisions that we make about what COVID protections we're going to use before we interact with each other, when we share space with each other, what our workplaces are like, what the transit is like, what going to the doctor is like. That's all humans doing things and human decisions, not like a virus that's targeting us because it doesn't like us and it wants to fuck with us. You know, (laughs) it's just really frustrating to sort of take it out of that like, idea of an ecosystem and how you know like things affect each other and and point it towards like this actor as if it's like an outside agitator coming in to like fuck with capitalism and fuck with your life there's a parallel here that i think is important to draw out with um some of the discussions about like are not like the reproductive number of the virus and endemicity and things like that and i know Mm. that we talked um in the episode with Ellie kind of recently, like we were very, very careful to emphasize that the reproductive number, like the R naught of, of any virus, not just COVID is really only partially like an innate biological property of the virus, right? Like R naught is kind of like a hybrid construct that combines like some, you know, some biological properties with a lot of like social stuff, right? So like how efficiently a virus spreads has a lot to do with what we do, you know, like what policies and behaviors we we enact. Um, but it's been interesting because in some of the like endemicity discourse, which we might get into later, you know what I mean? That social component really, really drops out yeah. and it's just... Mm-hmm. um you know, a discussion of the of the biological properties of the virus, which is um, counterproductive. I have one final thing to add about this Ashish Jha quote, which I think is pretty important context, which is I think that these comments are particularly offensive because when we look at the reasoning that the Biden administration itself gave for dropping universal masking, it was all explicitly stated that they thought that we don't need masks anymore because hospitals were not, you know, quote unquote, overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. So whatever. So fucking <laughs> aggravating. I, I digress. A few other important <sighs> things happened in January, but I'm going to stay on the Biden administration for the moment. On January 21st, Biden once again shows just how much COVID is a priority for him with the following statement at a meeting with mayors from across the United States. Quote, the need for, I mean, look at what's happened. And I think we... I sometimes underestimate it because I stopped thinking about it, but I'm sure you don't. We lost one over one million people in several years to COVID, unquote. 
On January 22nd, it's reported and then confirmed January 27th that Biden administration chief of staff Ron Klain will be stepping down with Jeff Zients coming in to replace him as the new chief of staff. For our listeners outside of the United States, uh, this is probably the most powerful position in the White House, I would say. Um, Now, probably most people listening to this will be well acquainted with Jeff Zients at this point, but it still bears repeating exactly how consequential this move is. As ever, there's more on Zions in past episodes, uh, including past year in reviews, but it bears repeating that Zions needs to be understood as the architect of the Biden administration's COVID response and what is known as the vaccine-only strategy. Uh, he came execute, in with the Biden... Execute, execute, yeah. Oh, I'm getting to that. <laughs> he came in with the Biden administration as its first COVID response coordinator prior to Ashish Jha taking on that job last year. And when he left the job, we here at Death Panel were quick to mention that one of the worst possible things that could happen would be Zions leaving for a short period of time and coming back in a position with greater power like chief of staff. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened. Um, We weren't the only people to think he might be next in line for chief of staff. Uh, Here's a Politico newsletter from February 1st, 2022, which was titled... um, the science geist is coming. Oh, no. <laughs> Quote, In conversations with over a dozen officials over the past few months, one name is always at the top of the list for next chief of staff. Jeff Zients, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator. The only debate is if he's the front runner for the next chief of staff or just a front runner. As scrutiny has mounted over the Biden administration's sluggish response to Omicron, Several officials, including Ron Klain, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, and Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra have taken heat for the missteps. But Zients, who runs the COVID team and makes nearly every major decision about the direction of the pandemic response, has emerged largely unscathed. He has yet to be called to testify before Congress about the COVID response, and unlike Walensky and Dr. Anthony Fauci, he has made only a handful of television appearances. The result, he is effectively invisible to much of the public, even as he wields immense power. He's the secret unquote. president. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other big False thing to know. Pope. Sorry. <laughs> He's the real Pope and the Jeff secret Science president. Jeff Science in his seat in Avignon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other big thing to know about this transition is that Zions picked himself. Uh, for the job, which is something that I don't think was mentioned in most of the reporting when the news broke. Uh, But I say this because according to reporting in Axios from September 2022, the Biden administration appointed Zions Zions and the person who had been Zions' deputy, Natalie Quillian, Mm -hmm. to, quote, oversee a wide talent search effort outside the administration, unquote, for new cabinet picks and other administration roles to come in after the 2022 midterm elections. So in short, (laughs) Science ran the search committee that selected himself. I mean, the arrogance. It's and too funny, though, also. <laughs> Natalie Quillian, once his deputy when he was COVID response coordinator, is now deputy White House chief of staff. Um, B and I spoke to Chris Lehman from The Nation when Science was announced as the pick, and I had forgotten exactly what we said, uh, but revisiting it to prepare for this, I think it's worth repeating ourselves. So this is from January 25th in The Nation, quote, Within the hothouse political theater of the Beltway, Zions has been widely credited with, quote, turning the pandemic around, unquote. But the real world import of that transformation courts renewed disaster. 
quote, what turning it around seems to mean is a very loud and very performative transition to the private market for the vaccine and therapeutics, says Beatrice Adler-Bolton, co-host of the podcast Death Panel, which has closely tracked Zions' tenure as COVID czar. Quote, it's very clear that Zions is going to have the model of COVID privatization be a priority for him as he moves into this new role, unquote. Adler-Bolton's Death Panel co-host Artie Vierkant is blunter. (laughs) I usually am. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Quote, it's important to note that this management approach spearheaded the playbook that led to 700,000 COVID deaths on the Biden administration's watch. This appointment demonstrates to me that the Biden administration truly does think that the absolute tragedy Zions oversaw was a major success story, and that should be terrifying. Unquote. Anyway, uh, just one last... Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, just one last piece of reporting I couldn't help but include. The news that Zions will be the next chief of staff also leads to this, frankly, incredible small detail Abby mentioned earlier being published <laughs> in the New York Times. This is the Times on January 22nd of this year. Quote, inside the West Wing, Zions has a reputation for being almost maniacal about developing a plan and sticking to it. <laughs> he so frequently referred to the national strategy for COVID-19 response and pandemic Preparedness that aides ordered a blanket with the cover of the thick book embroidered on it. <laughs> on the back of the blanket was Mr. Zions's mantra to his colleagues, execute, execute, execute. His staff had similar t-shirts made up. I feel like this is going to be like, I feel like 20 years from now, we're going to have a viral moment where like, I don't know, someone's going to sell one of these blankets or something and a whole bunch of kids are going to be like, oh, this dude's so cool. And then there's going to be a huge like moment of of retrenchment when it's like, oh, no, he's not cool at all. He's terrible. (laughs) I maintain that I really want to see a picture of these things. Yes, absolutely. The t-shirts, the blanket, whatever you've got. We still have not. I want a blanket. Like, please mail me one. I just want to know what the font is that execute is written in like so bad. And oh so God. far, no one that we know that that listens to the show and, you know, works in the White House and is like very low key about being a death panel listener has actually had laid eyes on them. So Joker man. Papyrus. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't I don't blame them for not wearing these out in public proudly. Like, yeah, they should um. <laughs> Uh, Not one to let a news cycle linger, especially when it's drawing a bunch of scrutiny. On January 30th, just days later, the Biden administration announces that the end of the public health emergency will be May 11th. We're going to obviously be speaking more about this later on, uh, but there is an immediate, very interesting and very predictable confusion around this announcement. Um, Recall from just earlier the two potential issues the Biden administration could face if it simply announced an end date of the public health emergency. Uh, which were the uncertainty around Medicaid unwinding, which by this point they've had a full month of news coverage circulating about. So, you know, that potential controversy is more or less covered um, and people can more easily imagine it as a separate issue. Uh, The second issue, though, was the fact that free vaccines and treatments were tied to the public health emergency and the Biden administration had laid precious little groundwork for that change to be announced. If you were on Twitter the day that the end of the public health emergency was announced, you may remember that this was immediately a big deal. Um, for those who have been following this closely, you have to remember that this was even before the Biden administration had announced anything concrete about what was planned to do with COVID treatments. You know, we have criticisms of the whole new arrangement and what's now called the Bridge Access Program. Uh, but at this point in late January, all that had really been said were just some very vague assurances that the Biden administration would figure something out. 
Um, even some of the most normie public health voices at the time point out that this is a problem. Here is a quote from Caitlin Jettelina's newsletter, for instance, from January 2nd, quote, ending funding for testing and vaccines is a real cause for concern. Once our free supply is out, everything will be privatized. Pfizer announced its vaccine will cost $130 per dose. This will no doubt fuel deep inequities in the U.S., and it is part of a much larger, deeply flawed system of pharmaceutical profiteering that this country hasn't got the ethical fortitude to address yet. Um, That last comment is so funny to me. Anyway, (laughs) the Biden administration appears caught off guard by this being a concern, which in itself should maybe tell you what their priorities are. Uh, I'm not going to call anything specific out in this episode, but I said a few more explicit things in some episodes earlier this year, I think in the patron feed. Um, But in the days following the announcement, we do notice some outlets making a few changes to posts of theirs to make implications of the end of the public health emergency a little less concrete. Uh, These updates tend to echo the administration's new line, not previously mentioned, but now being adamantly pushed for damage control that essentially just because the public health emergency is ending May 11th doesn't mean COVID will be kicked to the private market on that exact date. No, instead, because there is a previously existing stockpile of things the federal government has already bought, vaccines and treatments will remain free until that stock is depleted. In other words, while supplies last. The Biden administration's defense is essentially, look, we don't know when we'll run out of free treatments. You don't know when we'll run out of free treatments. But so help me God, you absolutely cannot say that the end of the public health emergency means they won't be unconditionally free anymore, (laughs) even though that's what's happening. That makes sense. (laughs) Makes a great sense. To get off of the uh, commercialization component for the moment, though, uh, this is a very big deal. Uh, we can talk about more about the implications as we get to May. Uh, but suffice it to say, this is the most unambiguous move yet. The Biden administration is declaring mission accomplished in the George W. Bush sense um, over the pandemic. Uh, and that's a appropriate comparison, actually, because as many people point out, In the days following the announcement, Biden is ending the COVID public health emergency some three years into COVID, while at the same time, the national emergency declared by George W. Bush on September 14th, 2001, the declaration of national emergency by reason of certain terrorist attacks, as it's formally called, is still in effect over 20 years later. Mm. Again, priorities. I do want to address a couple points that come up in the discourse around this. Um, Some of the pundits who are most critical of COVID advocates use this as an opportunity to say variations of, well, I guess you just want the emergency to last forever. Obviously, I just have to say briefly, no. Obviously, everyone wants this to be over. Uh, The real thing is that it doesn't matter whether we call it an emergency or not. What matters about the end of the public health emergency is two things. One, the explicit material ramifications of it ending both in the sense of things like commercialization and in the sense of things like less people masking. Uh, And two, second, the same thing I basically just said, the fact that, you know, quote unquote, Biden ends public health emergency sends a pretty fucking clear signal to the general public that COVID is over, no matter what nuance you think exists in the technical specifics of the emergency part ending. And this is the point, right? That it's whatever one thinks about the, uh, yeah, the designation the only reason that it matters is that it allows you to, you know, access certain emergency resources to do things like centralize the co- and coordinate. Yeah. Once that's over, and once you make the deliberate decision to move to commercialization, um, you have the situation that confronts people now, which is that I called my doctor's office, you know, uh, like last week, 
and just just curiously, you know, like I got ended up getting. Wait, have my, you still not gotten the new fucking? No, no, no I got I got okay, my okay. booster at at Walgreens because I, after talking to my PBM, they you know okayed it. Uh, but the but I just was curious, like you know, uh, if I were to go into the doctor's office, I have an appointment coming up. Would they have the vaccine? Their answer to me in you know late November of twenty twenty three is no, they didn't have any. And so the point is like. You know, there is this uh, really wasted opportunity to take a a political position that there are some things that are important enough. And, and it's actually it works much better if their allocation is centrally planned. Um, and that's just like anybody who like looking at the way the market for these things works and what has happened in the wake of commercialization would tell you. Yeah. Um, but that entire, uh, you know, whatever one does with a, you know, uh, emergency itself, that whole like opportunity for like political leadership is, 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 is wasted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I think in, in one way, it's also really important to acknowledge that part of like the job of the presidential administration is storytelling Right. You know, it's about communicating accomplishments and, you know, how to understand like the passage of time under that leadership for the party. Right. And so for a while before the official, you know, emergency declaration was ended and the Medicaid unwinding started, um, you know, we we saw for over a year the Biden administration kind of wringing hands preemptively like, oh, we don't have enough money. We're not going to have enough money soon. Mm -hmm. Oh, Congress won't give us money. Forget the fact we're not trying. But, you know, in a very sophisticated, you know, long game public relations strategy, surprise, surprise, they're the ones who ultimately really push the button that turns the lights off on the funding, right? Like they uh, decouple Medicaid, um, you know, from the end of the pandemic, public health emergency declaration saying, oh, well, we have to do this so that, you know, it's less volatile, so that it's calmer. Um, and we're going to separate these two things and we're going to make sure that that they don't affect each other. And then it's accomplished within such sh- like close proximity that it's so <laughs> it's so obviously clear how part of what we have been up against is not just a failed public health strategy, but we are up against a narrative that is being built in real time, right, that conflicts our experiences of the pandemic. And that's, I think, important to to just say out loud, because I know a lot of times, like, when we when we sort of or when folks are just like talking about COVID in general, like we talk about like what's happening in COVID as a failed public health strategy. But that's us sort of asserting a, a narrative basically against the narrative that's being built, right? Which is the pandemic is over. The Biden administration did a great job, right? Like the the whole sort of framework here is that the Biden administration has been using the pandemic as part of their storytelling. They had a plan and they stuck to it. They executed, executed, <laughs> executed, right? And they laid this story out for us for months, saying we're going to turn the lights off, right? Like we are going to do, and they sort of prefigure the the reality that we all experience, it seems like, right? But but part of what's going on is that this is a, a clear pattern of disengagement, which if, if you go to, um, you know, the past coverage that we've done on this, like 
how liberals killed masking, right? Like this is something that begins in the transition to the presidency in the beginning of Biden's time in office, right? You have the idea that masking is only going to last 100 days. And we have seen things proceed regardless of the connection to where the virus is and how it's spreading. So it's always really important to, to remember that we're not just up against a failed public health strategy. We are up against a narrative that is being built in real time that conflicts with the truth that we all know and have been living through. Mm-hmm. So still on the, you know, back back to sort of like the announcement of the end of the public health emergency, though, um, I do want to read Three fascinating bits of context that is given for this move, uh, just to make sure we have this on the record. These are three separate justifications for ending the public health emergency that are spoken to completely different audiences at the time. Uh, So the first is comments given to CNN by an unnamed aide that put the blame on Republicans who, with fresh control of the House of Representatives, were trying to push forward a floor vote to end the public health emergency. This is from CNN January 31st, quote, The White House weighed in because House Democrats were concerned about voting against the Republican legislation to end the public health emergency that is coming to the floor this week without a plan from the Biden administration, a senior Democratic aide told CNN. Democrats were concerned about the optics of voting against Republicans (laughs) winding down the public health emergency absent an understanding of whether and how we intended to do so from the White House, the aide said. Um, Optics, we love it. Yeah. Um, The second piece of context for the Biden administration's decision on the timing to end the public health emergency comes from a letter sent from the White House's Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, January 30th. This was a letter sent to the House Rules Committee to ask them to back off from their vote to end the public health emergency abruptly. The part I'm most interested in is this, quote, To be clear, continuation of these emergency declarations until May 11th does not impose any restriction at all on individual conduct with regard to COVID-19. They do not impose mask mandates or vaccine mandates. They do not restrict schools or business operations. They do not require the use of any medicines or tests in response to cases of COVID-19, unquote. In other words, hey now, let us have our little public health emergency, but just until May 11th, We've so thoroughly stripped away any semblance of a COVID response already, any pretense of anything close to a mask mandate that you might as well just let us have this one. (laughs) Um, The letter continues, (laughs) quote, an abrupt end to the emergency declarations would create wide ranging chaos and uncertainty throughout the healthcare system for states, for hospitals and doctor's offices, and most importantly, for tens of millions of Americans. During the public health emergency, the Medicaid program has operated under special rules to provide extra funding to states to ensure that tens of millions of vulnerable Americans kept their Medicaid coverage during a global pandemic. In December, Congress enacted an orderly wind down of these rules to ensure that patients did not lose access to care unpredictably and that state budgets don't face a radical cliff. If the public health emergency were suddenly terminated, it would sow confusion and chaos in this critical wind down. Due to this uncertainty, tens of millions of Americans could be at risk of abruptly losing their health insurance and states could be at risk of losing billions of dollars in funding, unquote. I wanted to make sure to highlight that because to me, this shows that they know the material impacts the end of the public health emergency is about to have. They just want to project the idea that they are going to do it in, to use their terms, a more predictable fashion. Um, As we said at the time, though, organized abandonment is still abandonment. No matter how neatly it's organized, an eviction notice is still an eviction notice. Um, 
Obviously, this does not mean that Congress might as well have just ended the public health emergency then and there. Far from it. Uh, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that I think we can safely say this description of, you know, quote unquote, patients losing access to care unpredictably and the, you know, quote, sowing of confusion and chaos is a good way to describe exactly what has happened this year with the termination (laughs) of the public health emergency. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that in. I guess I jumped the gun a little bit there. That's fine. Um, (laughs) The third and final piece of context that the Biden administration delivers for why the public health emergency will end on May 11th is the PR spin justification delivered by none other than White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Ashish Jha in a series of tweets on January 31st. They read, I'm just going to read this thread because... It's uh, probably one of the most important Ashish Jha uh, threads from during his tenure. Quote, the administration just laid out plans to end the COVID national emergency and public health emergency on May 11th. Why now? Because we're in a better place. We're getting (laughs) through this winter without a big surge or run on hospitals because we have the tools to manage this virus. Thread. So over the next three months, we will execute a smooth transition. But let's be clear about something that folks are confusing. The end of the public health emergency does not mean people will suddenly not be able to get the vaccines and treatments they need. This is an important distinction. We have millions of doses of bivalent vaccines and Paxlovid. They will continue to be available for free to all Americans who need them. Over time, we will transition away from the U.S. government buying vaccines and treatments to the regular healthcare market. And because of the Affordable Care Act, in parentheses, thanks Obama, Vaccines should remain largely free to most Americans, and we are committed to ensuring that uninsured largely free. That's hilarious. And we are committed to ensuring that uninsured Americans continue to face as few financial barriers as possible to access vaccines, treatments, and tests. So over the coming months, you'll see plans rolled out. Plans where ensuring access is a key priority. Our healthcare system is complicated and leaves too many behind. We are committed to ensuring that exactly when it comes exactly the to, way we like it. <laughs> we are committed to ensuring that when it comes to COVID vaccines and treatments, no one is left behind. And I said and because he wrote and he he tweets weird. If you've never seen a Ashish Jaw tweet, go read them. They're weird. The worst um, poetry I've ever read. A lot of paragraph line breaks. Um anyway, no one is left behind indeed. So um that's mostly what we're gonna focus on for January. But uh now that this is the first month of 2023 proper. Uh, I'll say that what I'm going to try and do for the uh, following months is end as many as I can with a sort of uh, best of this month in the discourse kind of thing um, for fun. Uh, So this is going to highlight one or two things that happened that month that were either the most enervating discourse, uh, in which case I apologize for reminding you of them, or were otherwise something from pundit land that we can all have a laugh at. (laughs) So January 2023 in the discourse. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Washington Post, January 13th, 2023. Opinion. We are overcounting COVID deaths and hospitalizations. That's yes. a problem. We need like uh, the dance Lena hall win. siren, like the air horn. Yes. Uh, um, Lena. So uh, I'll, I'll read very little of this, but uh, you, you get the gist from the, the headline. Lena Wen saying we are overcounting COVID deaths and hospitalizations. Uh, she writes, quote, According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the United States is experiencing around 400 COVID deaths a day. Experiencing, right? At that rate, uh, love to experience. Um, at that rate, there would be nearly 150,000 COVID deaths a year. But are these Americans dying from COVID? 
or with COVID. Two infectious disease experts I spoke with believe that the number of deaths attributed to COVID is far greater than the actual number of people dying from COVID. Um, unquote. One of these two infectious That's disease experts. That's the biggest cranks you've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of these two infectious disease experts, uh, as uh, she uh, describes them, um, who so generously give when their opinions, remember, she's explicitly said in the opinion of these two people. Um <laughs> Uh, so uh, one of these two people is, uh, it should be noted, Shira Doran, who ding, did ding, a lot ding. of advocating against <laughs> mitigations earlier in the pandemic. When continues, quote, both Dretler and Doran have faced criticism from people who say they are minimizing COVID. But that is not at all their aim. <laughs> they have taken care of COVID patients throughout the pandemic and have seen the evolution of the disease. Earlier on, COVID pneumonia often killed otherwise healthy people. Today, most patients in their hospitals carrying the coronavirus are there for another reason. They want the public to see what they're seeing. Um, skipping ahead, you know, she says a couple of other things. Um, we, we read this in further detail in an episode way back when, but uh, I want to read the, the big kicker at the end, which is, quote, Most importantly, knowing who exactly is dying from COVID can help us identify who is truly vulnerable. <laughs> These are the patients we need to protect through better vaccines and treatments. Uh, a runner-up for this segment, January in the Discourse, uh, was this headline. Just the headline, because uh, I'll, I'll do this a couple times, you'll see. Time Magazine, January 30th. Quote, the COVID-19 pandemic will be over when Americans think it is. Oh my god. Unquote. It's like truer than secret. I want it to be. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thoughts become things. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. Is it like, is some of this stuff, I, I have to wonder, like, is it the discourse or what job was Lena Wen trying to get at this point? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, just uh, to round out January, rapid fire, a couple quick things. Uh, January 27th, the FDA formally revokes monoclonal antibody Avusheld's authorization, prompting this incredible headline from CNBC, quote, CDC urges people with weak immune systems to take extra precautions after COVID subvariants knock out Avusheld. Thanks, you're Fuck making you that super much. easy. Um, Moderna also in January announces it will seek $110 to $130 for its COVID vaccine when it goes to the private market, which I mentioned before. And finally, a study finds 71% of people with long COVID who claimed workers' comp in New York were out of work for at least six months or more. Um, February 2023. This brings <sighs> us to February. As usual, we'll start with the Biden administration and federal policy first. Um, Biden delivers his State of the Union speech on February 7th. He uses the occasion to take a victory lap on COVID and tout the coming end of the public health emergency. Here are some highlights. Quote, two years ago, COVID had shut down our businesses, closed our schools, and robbed us of so much. Today, COVID <laughs> no longer controls our lives. While the virus is not gone... Thanks to the resilience of the American people, we have broken COVID's grip on us. Unquote. <laughs> Two okay. years ago, we had hope, jobs, cash. <laughs> <laughs> but see what I mean about the way that COVID is doing this to us right now? Oh, yeah. COVID is doing it. No, we are doing this to us. We are doing yeah. this. Like, <sighs> um, The next day. Zience officially comes in as the new chief of staff. His ominous first tweet on February 8th of this year is a picture of him, Jeff Zients, sitting at his desk, <laughs> looking like he's trying really hard to smile with a caption reading, quote, day one, ready to work. Let's finish the job. 
Um, execute, execute, execute. He's not wearing a mask in the photo, by the way. We passed through February with precious few concrete details on how exactly the Biden administration plans to navigate the end of the public health emergency, though CMS, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, does release a vague fact sheet by the end of the month. Uh, here is a characterization of what was going on within the White House from Politico from February 16th in an article headlined, quote, White House moles post-COVID emergency backstop for uninsured. Uh, quote, the Department of Health and Human Services has pledged to take care of the uninsured, though it's so far offered few specifics. The department has instead focused on preparing the health industry and consumer groups for the official end of the public health emergency, health officials said, with plans to roll out more details on commercialization as that process is finalized in the coming months, unquote. We also learned in February through Alexander Tin, a reporter for CBS News, that when the public health emergency ends, so too will the federal requirement that private labs report COVID test positivity data up to the government. As a result, CDC will be, and is now, more in the dark on case counts than it was before, to the point that an HHS official tells Tin that they will no longer be able to calculate community transmission level. I should clarify, because this is a point that, as we have talked about in the past, we think is intentionally confusing. Community transmission level, the thing I was just referring to, is the old system of tracking transmission, COVID transmission, from pre-2022, the one that just looked at pure COVID case count. Uh, It's distinct from the similarly named community level system that focuses more on hospitalizations that the CDC uh, used from spring 2022 until the end of the public health emergency. Um, So just for only slightly over one year. Um, So the CDC is saying essentially it won't be able to even calculate the old system anymore. Which wasn't that when the switch was made, if I recall correctly, in March of 21, sorry, in March of 22, hospitals were supposed to rely on the transmission level system. Exactly. Okay. So at this point in the timeline, in early 2023, the only entities that are using the CDC's old system, uh, based purely on cases and transmission, uh, the system it will no longer be able to calculate as of the end of the public health emergency, are hospitals and other healthcare settings, just like you're saying. Hospitals Um, are struggling. Let's get rid of any visual that might reflect that. Well, and the data to suggest that they should, in fact, keep their mask mandates Mm -hmm, in place. mm -hmm. Oops. Not mm-hmm. oops, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, th- these are the same places that the CDC said, yeah, okay, masking optional too, back in September 2022. See, I remember. <laughs> <sighs> I did promise that all the all the preamble was going to be worth it. It is, um, it is, yeah. Outside Painfully of the Biden, so. Outside of the Biden administration, uh, there is a very significant development in February, uh, speaking of which, uh, speaking of masking in hospital settings, the state of New York announces that it will end its masking requirement for hospitals and other healthcare facilities on February 12th. Um, this, in effect, kicks off or is part of a wave of states, hospitals, and healthcare systems that drop mask mandates across, as we've said many times before, you know, the one setting you might think would be the easiest, at least, to have maintained masking as a standard preventative practice going forward, regardless of the state of the pandemic. Um, about a month later, March 5th, California follows suit, announcing masks will no longer be required in healthcare settings in California as of April. Um, speaking of masking, let's move to February 2023 in the discourse. And February's discourse is all about the Cochrane Review of Masking. Mm. Oh, boy. Um, in brief, uh, <laughs> yeah. I thought I blocked all of this out. Yeah. Um, I remember getting to this when I was like, I doing, did block this out. Yeah. When I was doing uh, the, the research for this, this is one of those things where I was like, oh my God. 
Every um, time Cochrane review comes up, something bad is about to happen. I yeah. just say that. That goes for a lot of things, not even just COVID. <laughs> and of course, the Cochrane review of masking is the thing that, as we'll get into in a second, is a meta-analysis that went around saying that essentially masks don't do anything, mask, that mask mandates don't work. Um, so in brief, this was uh, a meta-analysis of a number of studies on masking, albeit one with so many holes that even Vox did a debunk article <laughs> on it. Um, Vox, which I think is notoriously willing to repeat things from white papers as mm. fact. Um, to make a long story incredibly brief, this purported meta-analysis left out quite a few studies, notably ignoring most studies that looked at evidence about COVID itself. It misrepresented the findings of at least one study it included that did indeed show a positive effect that mask from mask mandates in healthcare settings, and you get the gist. Um, most importantly, apart from the scientific issues, it was an unabashedly ideological production. Several of the authors had longstanding track records of downplaying COVID, and I'll focus here on just one in particular, Tom Jefferson, not Thomas, Tom. Um, Tom Jefferson has a number of articles published by the Brownstone Institute, which is, I guess I would say, more or less a blog Mama that has Mia. the <laughs> outward appearance of being a think tank uh, that is an outcropping or extension, I guess, of the broader Great Barrington Declaration extended universe. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to read a snippet from an interview that someone conducted around this time with Jefferson for their Substack. Uh, this was titled exclusive lead author of new cochran review speaks out a no holds barred interview with tom jefferson ricky gervais uh, ass uh so we read from this before on the show but i'm gonna reread a snippet uh from this just um to give you an idea um so the context for this is there's a bit of back and forth between jefferson and the interviewer then Jefferson says that Cochrane delayed publishing uh, the paper for too long and says that Cochrane did so for ideological reasons because they were worried about putting out a paper that was critical of masking. So, uh, quote, interviewer, do you think Cochrane was playing a political game? Jefferson, that I cannot say, but the delay was seven months that just happened to coincide with the time when all the craziness began, when academics and politicians started jumping up and down about masks. We call them strident campaigners. They are activists, not scientists. Ugh. Oh, my they, God. <laughs> later, quote, interviewer. But people say, I'm not wearing a mask for me. I'm wearing it for you. Jefferson, I have never understood the difference. Have you? Interviewer. They say it's not to protect themselves, but to protect others. An act of altruism. Jefferson. Ah, yes. Wonderful. They get the Albert Schweitzer Prize for humanitarianism. Here's what I think. Your overnight experts know nothing. The interviewer laughs. Jefferson, there is just no evidence that they, meaning masks, th there is just no evidence that they make any difference. Full stop. <laughs> Unquote. So for those who missed this cycle of discourse, I'll just say that lest you think we're just grabbing for a random crank here to punch down on, it's important to note that the Cochrane Review of Masking had a very noticeable and dramatic impact. For instance, it was picked up in a very widely shared Brett Stevens op-ed in the New York Times, uh, which was headlined, The Mask Mandates Did Nothing, Will Any Lessons Be Learned? And as per usual, when the time prints something like that, you get a raft of people saying, see, look, finally, you know, even the New York Times has admitted masks were a mistake, etc. Um, same as we saw with David Lee and Hart the previous year. Um, so here's just a, a brief bit from that Brett Stevens op-ed. This is from February 21st, 2023. Quote, no study or study of studies is ever perfect. Science is never absolutely settled. 
What's more, the analysis does not uh, the, the analysis in the Cochrane review does not prove that proper masks, properly worn, had no benefit at an individual level. People may have good personal reasons to wear masks, and they may have the discipline to wear them consistently. Their choices are their own. But when it comes to the population-level benefits of masking, the verdict is in. Mask mandates were a bust. Those (laughs) skeptics who were furiously mocked as cranks and occasionally censored as misinformers for opposing mandates were right. The mainstream experts and pundits who supported mandates were wrong. In a better world, it would behoove the latter group to acknowledge their error along with its considerable physical, psychological, pedagogical, and political costs. No, how about fuck you instead? <laughs> like, I'm so, this just pisses me off so tremendously because, like, I'm a better scientist than all these people. I'm so, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like, especially this Cochrane Review guy. I know this type so well. I don't even know what his, like, credentials are, and it doesn't even matter. But, like, the credulity with which people trained in the sciences accept you know what i mean these like statistical manipulate like there's always so much to get into with something like trying to study something like a mask mandate but it is absolutely you have to read the evidence in such a rote and mechanical way to arrive at the conclusion like the science shows this like it absolutely does no such thing and all of this like i i i'm sorry but like no i don't accept it you know what i mean i don't accept brett stevens (laughs) saying that we all need to like humble ourselves and reflect and apologize (laughs) like we need to do no such thing um and I don't know. I'm sorry. We can cut this out because there's no. Pr- this is not propelling the narrative forward at all. But this just pisses me off so fucking much. Like the the weaponization of science, but only in again, yeah, like the most rote, mechanical, like the least inquisitive, and I might add the most ideologically rigid and sclerotic way possible um, to try to browbeat. To try to browbeat, you know, people like us, it's it's unacceptable. But it also, to me, I, let's think about this as an object lesson, mm. because as I think I said on the episode where we talked about this, like the Cochrane Review is one of these sort of objects that is very. It occupies like a a rarefied position. It's invested with a lot of authority. It's invested yeah. with a lot of authority. It's seen as uh, a whatever, a gold standard of uh, systematically uh, sort of compiling and interpreting mountains of, of scientific evidence. And which actually, I think perversely, that prestige makes it a perfect target for people who mm-hmm. want to manipulate yeah. uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, information. In fact, it's, its credibility is one of its greatest vulnerabilities and and I think that we should expect that people will try to use it again this way. But like people who have rev- done Cochrane reviews before, uh, you know, in commenting on this, like this never should have gotten through uh, just because of how many things it combined uh, studies across different settings um, that it was it was really uh, making claims with a, a really high level of certainty when that certainty simply did not exist. Yeah, the politics, the politics of evidence that have just kind of like recurred throughout the pandemic, I think are perhaps really like on display. Um, 
with this yeah. kind of Cochrane review episode. But, um, you know, just because the politics of evidence are very interesting to me. And I feel like on, on this podcast, like we do a pretty good job of, of parsing them, but yeah, yeah. Something like the Cochrane review is like, well, and of course the most high profile, like the, the things that always get the most high profile play are the things that are saying, Oh, well, you know, what if we did less, you know, it's always look at all these long hairs. (laughs) Look at all these fucking commies. It honestly, it reminds me so much of, you know, all these conversations, jewels that we've we've had around, you know, the WPATH guidelines as gatekeeping mm-hmm. too. You know, I think we look to these ways of sort of systematizing uh, a, a type of finality on it, right? Like, and seeking this kind of like position that can be held up by by someone in the New York Times as definitive, right? As a, as a kind of line in the sand, as a horizon to work with. And this is like a very powerful gatekeeping mechanism, mm-hmm. you know? And just the death spiral of, um, you know, of this kind of like liberal defense of gatekeeping, um, you know, that sort of thrives on on a lack of context for what is Cochrane? What is the standard? What is like, you know, these complicated yeah, conversations yeah. What about is evidence? evidence. <laughs> yeah, which are like only part you know, partly methodological scientific conversations, they are also political, social conversations. Um, they're also rhetorical conversations and media conversations. And it just, it's like in the particular political environment we live in, you know, it's its its a convenient strategy to cover up one's interest of, you know, <laughs> yes. in, in upholding yes. one version of this, right? You know, and it's just like, I don't know, just perennially, yeah, that, that connection makes sense to me too, B. It's just like, it suits people. It suits a certain. It suits a certain political liberal strategy to disavow, you know, or make itself apolitical in like holding up these, um, you know, these decontextualized uh, evidentiary standards. Precisely because you get to fantasize that only one, only that rabid anti-science side, you know, likes to disavow its politics and believe whatever it wants to believe about evidence. And it's just like oh, this is such a mess. Yep. Mm-hmm. And true to form, Brett Stevens concludes, quote, whatever the reason, mask mandates were a fool's errand from the start. <laughs> the Cochrane report ought to be the final nail in this particular coffin. Yeah. Emphasis but, on whatever the reason, because I yeah, truly feel like any reason. Would... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. The same could be said about your career, Brett. <laughs> um, March 2023. This brings us to March. <laughs> On March 1st, a major public health emergency era improvement to the U.S. social safety net goes away and one that receives truly precious little coverage. I'm talking, of course, about expanded SNAP benefits, the (sighs) Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. SNAP is far from perfect. There are plenty of issues with it, uh, but I'll take a more generous version of an imperfect program over the regular imperfect program any day. Um, Here's one quote from an Urban Institute Mm. analysis of the expanded program from August 2022 um, that uh, says what the expanded benefits did while they were in force, uh, which is, quote, they kept 4.2 million people out of poverty in the fourth quarter of 2021, reducing poverty by 9.6% in states with emergency allotments. Uh, emergency allotments also reduced child poverty by 14% in states with these benefits, unquote. 
Um, Before we move on, can I just fast forward to a report that came out um, just a month ago that is the National Hunger Survey report that showed that, quote, the number of Americans without enough food over a seven day period was an average of 40 percent higher in September and October of 2023 than September and October of 2021. There you go. Please continue. Um, The biggest COVID news out of the Biden White House in March is perhaps for the first time, not about winding down policies or mitigations, but about winding down the entire response team itself. Um, Here is Dan Diamond and Tyler Pager's article from the Washington Post breaking this March 22nd and confirming what we knew was an active discussion in the fall of 2022 and early 2023. White House disbanding its COVID-19 team in May. (laughs) Quote, a senior administration official said in a statement to the Washington Post that it makes sense now to shift out of emergency status status Poor as sheesh. a result. <laughs> as a result of this administration's historic response to COVID-19, we as a nation are in a safer, better place than we were three years ago. The official said COVID no longer disrupts our lives because of investments and our efforts to mitigate its worst impacts. And because we gave up, so many people are so much hungrier now than two years ago. <laughs> well, those are also like because of investments that we're actively undoing. Yes. Uh, Fucking disingenuous quote, shit. COVID is, quote, COVID is not over. Fighting it remains an administration priority. Sure. And transitioning out of the emergency phase is the natural evolution of the COVID response. Unquote. There is also this detail, which I personally love. Um Quote, the team's diminished presence has manifested in diminished proximity to the president. Ashish Jha's office was moved out of the West Wing this year to the neighboring Eisenhower Executive Office building, according to three people familiar with the matter. I mean, Um, it's amazing that natural evolution of the COVID response point is almost as close as we've gotten to an official just coming out and saying, yeah, so folks, we've decided to go with social Darwinism and we're going to turn up the heat a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's... Um, I mentioned this Eisenhower building thing uh, for a couple of reasons. First, because it shows that COVID has already been actively deprioritized. Um, putting Ashish jaw out to pasture in the Eisenhower <laughs> building is a pretty blunt signal. Um, second, uh, I'm just going to speculate here. I think, quote, moved this year. Uh, suggest that when Zions came back, there was basically no need for jaw to be around anymore, yep. uh, except as a mouthpiece. Um Elsewhere, in March, on March 6th, New York City Mayor Eric Adams says in a radio interview on 1010 Winds, quote, we are putting out a clear call to all of our shops. Do not allow people to enter the store without taking off their face mask, adding that, quote, some of these characters going into stores that are wearing their mask, they're not doing it because they're afraid of the pandemic. They're doing it because they're afraid of the police. <laughs> uh, B writes in Alice Wong's blog. What's up, Alice? Shout out. Um about such carceral forms of anti-masking, the idea of masking making, uh, sorry, the idea of making masking criminalized behavior, uh, and how it's yet another example of the sociological production of the end of the pandemic as an explicit restriction on disabled and immunocompromised people's access to or rights to participate in society. Um, let's uh, let's move on quickly though, because we're we're getting to another period with a lot of activity. April twenty twenty three, um, April first, the Medicaid unwinding begins. States are now allowed to begin executing their plans for how they'll process eligibility redeterminations for the 90 plus million people who are on Medicaid as of April 1st, an enormous record high for the U.S.'s social safety net health insurance program of last resort. 90 million people on Medicaid. 
which I think is an indictment of the capitalist state in and of itself. Um, Mm -hmm. So high is this record high, in fact, that even though as of April 1st, states begin culling their roles and reversing those gains, the Biden administration still can't help but gloat about all the coverage that they're about to undo. This gloating happens in August, but it pertains to data through the end of March, so I'm going to highlight it now. Um, On August 3rd, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra tweets, quote, in Las Vegas, I visited Kano Health to highlight the success of at POTUS's investing in America agenda as it lowers healthcare costs. And it's paying off. Today, we announced that the national uninsured rate reached an all-time low of 7.7% in early 2023. What Becerra is citing is a report from HHS dated August 3rd, showing data from the government's annual National Health Interview Survey. If you read the data sheet on this, here is what the very first bullet point says. Uh, Quote, the nation's uninsured rate declined significantly in early 2023 relative to 2020, reaching an all-time low of 7.7% for U.S. residents of all ages in the first quarter, January through March of 2023. So considering that the unwinding started April 1st, immediately after the period that the survey was monitoring, uh, I would call that a pretty crass thing to be gloating about. Yeah. Um, Particularly in August, because as we'll see, by August, we have some of the first data already on how many millions of people were being kicked off of Medicaid in just the first few months of the unwinding. Um, Another thing just to add for context as we talk about the unwinding going forward, uh, it's important to note that it doesn't happen all at once. Every state... Uh, you know, it starts April 1st, but, you know, every state before that had to submit a plan to HHS for how it was going to process Medicaid denials. And some of the states uh, start sooner than others. Uh, even for those who do start right at the beginning, right on April 1st, it will take a lot of time for all of that data to come in on what exactly happened with unwinding. And just because a state starts one month doesn't mean they'll finish that month. Far from it. Um, the whole process is expected to take roughly a full year. So that means we'll still be uh hearing about mass Medicaid disenrollments into next year. Um, and we'll be covering that, obviously. Um, so the following states start the Medicaid unwinding process right at the gate, April 1st. Um, those are Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, New Hampshire, and South Dakota. But again, at this point, no data uh, will come out from these yet. From here on out the timeline, um, I'll be updating us periodically with the best information we had at that given point as of, uh, you know, as of any given month on how many millions of people were confirmed at that point to have been kicked off of Medicaid. Um, In other Biden administration-related developments, the CDC announces that as of the end of the public health emergency, it will be dropping the community-level system, the color-coded system that we were up in arms about just a year prior, which was itself only introduced on February 25th, 2022. Again, it only lasted about a year. This is the other one that I was just talking about, the two kind of confusing, uh, intentionally confusingly similarly named um, ways of monitoring COVID risk. Um, we also finally, mere days away from the end of the public health emergency, get a glimmer of details from the Biden administration on how they plan to deal with COVID vaccines and treatments for the uninsured after the public health emergency ends. They announce what is known as the quote unquote bridge access program. Um, how does it work? According to their fact sheet released April 18th, quote, this program will leverage public commitments by drug manufacturers to provide vaccines and treatments such as Paxlovid free of charge for the uninsured, unquote. 
to decode that and say what this program actually does, the government now, instead of paying for the whole thing, will pay pharmacies to administer vaccines, while for the price of the drugs themselves, it's relying on the good faith and goodwill of Pfizer and Moderna and the like to provide the drugs for free via patient assistance programs. Um, that makes it up to Pfizer and Moderna to decide exactly how generous they're going to be with the free drugs and vaccines and what criteria qualify someone to actually get them. It's a deferral to just trust these private actors to play nice. Um, we also find out the expected sundown date on this program itself. In other words, how long we should expect vaccines, uh, to remain free going forward. They specify that this should be through the end of December, 2024. So for anyone listening who maybe remembers listening to COVID Year 2 or COVID Year 3 when they were released, I think we can all agree that's pretty soon. Um, it's going to be that time before we know it. Um, and what's more, who knows who will have you know won that election next year. So you know that seems to me like a classic case of kicking the can and hoping no one follows up about where it went. Um, other developments, uh, I'm just going to read the title of this Biden administration fact sheet because I imagine some of our listeners may take issue with the characterization here. April 5th, quote, fact sheet, Biden-Harris administration makes progress in whole of government response to long COVID. Um, don't recall a lot of advancements there. And I think this is one of those areas where the Biden administration's use of the term whole of government approach is more than a little misleading. Um we're almost to May, which means the end of the public health emergency. Uh, but first, of course, our discourse for April. This time we have a couple of things. The first is a headline. Washington Post, April 16th. COVID is still a leading cause of death as the virus recedes. Um, words can really mean anything, I guess. Also in April, David Leonhardt puts out a newsletter called The Long Shadow of COVID School Closures, <laughs> arguing, among other things, that, quote, the closures caused some Americans to sour on public schools, unquote, which is just absolutely rich coming from a yeah, pro-charter I mean, school. I'll say. School privatization guy. Never do anything. Always be afraid <laughs> of souring. No political action is ever possible. Everyone, do nothing every day. Right. <laughs> That's right. Managing uh, my you, blood pressure over here. <laughs> I was going to say, are you trying out for, to replace the sheesh when they restand up the response? Right. You I have to end nothing. every expression like a telegram. Stop. End. <laughs> <laughs> We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> yeah, um, this brings us to May uh, and the end of the public health emergency. And by extension, perhaps the Biden administration's last big mission accomplished on COVID. May 2023. Um, first things first for May, uh, not COVID related RIP to Jordan Neely killed on May 1st. Um, that's also something I was very sad to remember was also the, like this year. Um, now for this month, May, uh, as we know, the public health emergency is set to end May 11th. So I'm going to go through the sequence of events leading up to that. Um, and maybe we can pause some for some reflection when we get to the 11th. Um, before we get to that in the U.S. context, though, let's turn back to May 5th, 2023. On that day, the World Health Organization saw fit to declare an end to its own declaration of a COVID global health emergency. The timing of this event coming just six days before the public health emergency was set to end in the United States sent a very clear signal, I believe, uh, repeated endlessly also by a whole lot of people that month, that COVID was officially over. Not Joe Biden, whoopsie, was it a gaffe or not? Uh, Detroit Auto Show 60 Minutes, the pandemic is over. 
but instead of an official, here is the line in the sand, that was just the end of the pandemic that we passed by kind of over. Um, I'm assuming May 2023 is going to become probably the historical end date of the global pandemic, even though it's clearly not gone anywhere, um, as we'll see very, very shortly in the timeline. Um, but uh, Tedros Gabricius uh, gives a speech that day, Friday, May 5th, 2023, which is also something of a eulogy for an ongoing crisis and includes some of the following statements. Quote, COVID-19 has been so much more than a health crisis. It has caused severe, this actually dovetails well with what B was saying about uh, anthropomorphizing the virus. It has caused, COVID has caused severe economic upheaval, erasing trillions from GDP, disrupting travel and trade, shuttering businesses, and plunging millions into poverty. It has caused severe social upheaval, with borders closed, movement restricted, schools shut, and millions of people experiencing loneliness, isolation, anxiety, and depression. COVID-19 has exposed and exacerbated political fault lines within and between nations. It has eroded trust between people, governments, and institutions, fueled by a torrent of misinformation and disinformation. And it has laid bare the searing inequalities of our world, with the poorest and the most vulnerable communities the hardest hit, and the last to receive access to vaccines and other tools. The virus is here to stay. It is still killing, and it is still changing. The risk remains of new variants emerging that cause new surges in cases and deaths. And then here's the key part, quote, The worst thing any country could do now is to use this news as a reason to let down its guard, to dismantle the systems it has built, or to send the message to its people that COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. COVID has changed our world, and it has changed us. If we all go back to how things were before COVID-19, we will have failed to learn our lessons and we will have failed future generations. Unquote. The very same day, May 5th, the Biden administration announces that CDC director and coiner of such phrases as the scarlet letter of the pandemic is the mask, Rochelle Walensky, will step down from her role and leave the government on June 30th. We'll return to this in a minute, but I think it's interesting that she announces her departure before the public health emergency even ends. Um, the public health emergency in the United States, of course, then rather unceremoniously comes to an end on May 11th, a closing chapter on a book that continues to be written. On May 11th, 2023, when the public health emergency ends, the official designation of COVID as a public health emergency lasted just exactly 1,200 days, just over three years. One million... 1,131,000 people had died of COVID by that point by the official numbers, which are almost certainly an undercount. More than half, about 700,000 of those, were under Biden, by the way. And by May 11th, countless people had been disabled by long COVID, a number that is still growing and a number that we may truly never know. Um, but importantly, this is absolutely not where the story ends. That week alone... When the public health emergency ended, almost a thousand people, about 900, died of COVID, according to CDC counts. The same is true for the week before that. The week ending May 6th, 947 people died of COVID in the US. The week before that, 1,024. The week before that, 1,194. These are the official figures, and again, likely to be undercounts. In fact, this entire year, according to the CDC's data, the lowest weekly death numbers we have ever experienced this year from COVID 
came the week ending July 8th, when 488 people died that week. Between May 11th and August, somewhere between 500 and 800 people died from COVID every week in the U.S., and as of the week ending August 26th, we have once again seen over 1,000 deaths a week every week, which you wouldn't necessarily know because the CDC now completely abstracts its public-facing death reporting into a percentage change week on week and has done so since the end of the public health emergency. So it's harder than ever to even find this out. Um, and death obviously is again, only one outcome, um, only one component of this. So obviously we're not, we're far from done. There's, there's like much more, but this is the end of part one. So I just want to sort of pause here for a second. If anyone wants to kind of reflect on this part of it. Hmm. I mean, it now becomes really obvious why uh, the Lena Wen column uh, yeah. and other things like it is necessary, not just because uh, she's sort of, you know, not so subtly, uh, you know, angling for a high, you know, high position in government, but because in order for this, you know, sleight of hand to, to come off, many other sort of rhetorical perlocutionary acts have to be taken so that, you know, you can imagine the Trump administration trying to do something like this, you know, in, uh, in late 2020. And you can imagine the Biden administration maybe trying to do this in uh, early 2021 and getting a little bit more, you know, outrage and blowback. And, you know, uh, I think that there's some evidence uh, of that. But after the accumulation of all these sorts of perlocutionary acts uh, and the, you know, uh, you have a population that's receiving this information uh, that's very different than the one that you started with. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. There, there mm -hmm. is a, a whole cultural, I think, process has, has taken place that allows you to say this, that allows this uh, shift in kind of the statistical apparatus of the pandemic to change in such a fundamental way, uh, such that we can no longer, you know, talk about those aggregates so uh, effectively. And, and there's, and there's no, you know, real response. It's a whimper. Uh, if anything, I mean, it's, it's really, you have a, a basically, uh, you know, if, the opinion leaders are not going to, to take a, a strong uh, sort of objection to this at all. Yeah, Phil, I am um, maybe just to kind of like rephrase what you said. I was thinking uh, a very similar thing um, listening to all of this, which is that just hearing, you know, the, um, the weekly mortality counts um, around this time, you know, like in, in May, it's really clear like, oh, this, this is exactly what, this is exactly what all of that rhetoric was for. Like, this is what pandemic mm -hmm. of the unvaccinated was for. This is what like all those David Leonhardt columns were for. I mean, basically I'm just, I'm just restating exactly what you said, but um, it's so, I, I don't know. It's just kind of, um, it's, it's clarifying in a, in a really weird way. <laughs> Um, to mm -hmm. see, you know what I mean? Like the, the process mm -hmm. of conditioning the population to accept yeah. this because we've been conditioned to understand that people dying of COVID is their own 
fault um, yeah. and their mm-hmm. own problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, it's like we came to like describing that feeling as like the sociological production of the end of the pandemic, not because that was like a cute or clever turn of phrase, but like early on in 2020, we talked about, you know, things like the kind of performativity of some of the discourse for, you know, already saying COVID's going to last two weeks, you know? Um, and so, you know, as normalization began so quickly, nearly as soon as the quote unquote official pandemic started, you know, it did feel, it did feel sort of surreal in a way. And it, like we settled on, on that phrase simply because it was like the best, I think that we could articulate and describe like what we felt like was maybe unfolding before our, you know, eyes and ears and whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's like funny because I <laughs> I actually can't stop thinking about my favorite episode of X-Files throughout mm. this conversation. Oh, hell yeah. What is it? Yeah, it's yeah. Jose Chung's from Outer Space. And it's the it's it's the weirdest and <laughs> one of the most fun episodes. Um it's very meta, but it is about uh alien encounter that happens where someone who is a fighter pilot working for the U.S. government, whose job is to fly, you know, U.S. government experimental planes dressed up as an alien to do fake alien encounters, uh-huh. is abducted by a real alien. <laughs> oh, no. And there is this amazing scene of, like, him as an alien smoking a cigarette, rocking back and forth, going, this is not happening. This is not happening. This is not (laughs) happening. And, like, you know, I feel like I've gone through each stage that that character, Lieutenant Jack Schaefer, goes through in that fucking episode, right? Which is, like, you start with being the alien in a cage, you know? And then you have, like, later on in the episode, he does, you know, the close encounters thing with Mulder in a diner, and he, you know, makes the mountain out of mashed potatoes, and he's like... I'm not sure if any of this really happened. Like, I'm not sure if I'm really here or if we're having this conversation right now, because what we have seen is like the idea of of the pandemic early on was this incredible threat. Right. And we have seen the reality of that threat persist. And yet the comprehension of that threat be systemically destroyed such that it has made so many people question, you know, what the point of government and the state are in a way that I think maybe just had not occurred to some people before. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there was a lot of like expectation that Biden coming in would fix it. Right. And I think we've all just sort of lived through not just like demonstrating that that notion that I think many people sort of started 2021 with um, as false, but as this being way more than simply like, again, like a failed public health response. This is an indictment of so many it's a dynamics. Whole of government failure. <laughs> it is a whole of government, right? This is a whole of government uh, approach that has fucking failed, right? This is a, mm. this is a approach of distributing resources and managing resources in society that has failed if you're counting killing people as failed. And I think it's, I think it's really become so clear that 
killing people doesn't count as a failure on that sort of grand ledger, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of folks, the, the facade of the benevolent state has been completely shattered during the ongoing pandemic, but especially during this, you know, the, the production of its official end in the United States, which is particularly this acute period that we have been living through, I'd say like the last 18 months. And I think mm. we're going to look back at these last 18 months many times throughout our lives and say, what the fuck happened? Because it can feel like so bewildering and like it all happened so fast. And it's what I'm overwhelmed by. is just how little time we've gone through and how much has fucking changed since the beginning of our timeline. Mm. Just yeah. to where we are right now. And it's just, yeah, I feel like the guy dressed as an alien in a cage smoking, saying this is not happening. This is why I wanted to start in September 2022 with the Detroit Auto Show thing. Yeah. Because it feels like a different universe now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like remembering how recent it was that there was like a uproar over. Obviously, I know some people were like, you know, clapping for buttons saying, quote unquote, the pandemic is over. But like there was an uproar about him just saying it and be like, what the fuck? Are you fucking kidding me? You know, like mm -hmm. it's not over. And then when you, you know, sitting here now in December, 2023 and looking back to that, it really, it feels, yeah, it feels like a different universe or something, but it was so recent. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is the, that that's like the power of the sociological production at the end of the pandemic. That's the power of this normalization process that again, is like principally spearheaded by the Biden administration and the undoing of all of these, uh, programs, all of these supports, and particularly all of like uh, not not just policies, but the like changing rhetoric that makes it increasingly the pandemic, the responsibility or the burden of a narrower and narrower perceived group of people. Right. Well, even it, though it's not, I think it's also important to frame. I'm thinking about this because of my conversation with Astra Taylor about her book, The Age of Insecurity. Which is like, it's it's these policies that were wound down. Yes, absolutely. It's the pandemic that was wound down. Yes, absolutely. But what was also wound down was a temporary shift in the baseline of security for people in the United States that had come with the pandemic response, right? Mm -hmm. We had, a, you know, I think the student loan pause, for example, which you know, we're living through the, t the turning back on period and it's been devastating for it. so many people, you know, and, and these tiny things like pausing student loan payments, right? Um, nap, the Medicaid disenrollment pause, you know, these were interruptions in the kind of insecurity that drives our economy, that drives so many markets, right? So that also is what, um, was being ended here, right? It's not just about the pandemic and this being about them not wanting to recognize disease. It's also about, you know, well, the disease brought proof that our economy doesn't need to be run at the pace of growth and towards the kind of growth that it is run, right? <laughs> that we don't have to force people into such precarious situations that we can actually give people just Medicaid and not kick them off, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, this is also like within the workplace, you know, nurses have had uh, this incredibly volatile shakeup to the, 
you know, the landscape of employment where you had people basically having nursing shortages in certain areas. And so then they were offering traveling nurses all these bonuses to come travel to the state over to take it over there. So then you had people, you know, being paid a tremendous amount of money to kind of come in for this COVID care on short contracts that has, you know, changed the way that, you know, nurses relate to each other as coworkers, right, as colleagues, because all of a sudden you have, you know, someone working next to you who's making $3,000 a week and you're making 600, right? And, and so you have all of these sort of things that, you know, whether it's liability also, thinking back to our conversation with Nate Holdren, right, the way that business leaders were really waiting to find out what the liability situation was going to mm-hmm. be, whether or not they were going to be responsible for yeah, hurting, you know, people mm-hmm. in or killing people like related to or living with any of their employees if their employees got COVID at work. So, you know, what was ended was not just the perception that COVID is, you know, something that makes us sick and disables us and kills us and is bad and that we absolutely easily, simply can suppress to a point that makes the world accessible for people like me with fucked up immune systems on medication, you know, and, you know, to the like the shitheads who who want to see everybody smile, right? But it it involves effort and it involves provisioning towards a fucking direct goal that is a COVID zero, right? Eliminating uh, spread to the point where it's not a problem, right? Standing up a real public health response, et cetera, right? But that is not just the only idea that was ended. The idea that was also ended was that when there is an emergency, that can incur like a temporary pause in the insecurity that defines so many of our lives, right? And that that above the threat of a deadly disabling disease, right? Like is really, really important to stop. Even if it means that that makes the disease go on forever. That's the decision Mm -hmm. that this democratic administration made and implemented. And when they had evidence that the plan wasn't going well, they stuck to the plan. Yep. Execute, execute, execute. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's the metric of success that they judge themselves by. Exactly. Back to our conversation with the Dia Benton. You judge yourself by your own rubric, then baby, you're doing great. Right. And we <laughs> specialize anything, in that. But more than anything, don't talk about the rubric. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Do not talk about the goal. Once, once you're talking about criteria, then people start thinking about other criteria. Mm-hmm. You don't want to talk. About, you know what I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. I think that that's a very fundamental thing. Like you should not be asking or you should depress the analytical acuity to ask what what should we be doing? Absolutely. Well, which I mean, you know, to I just want to bring in, you know, we have to remember there's also like stuff that came out in 2022 that we talked about in COVID year three that was, you know, to the effect of like, yeah, they had conversations that were what is an acceptable, quote unquote, acceptable level of daily deaths. Right. Right. And they decided to not pick one because as you're saying, Phil, if you have a, if you have a rubric, if you have a goal, like you're going to, you can uh, fail. You are, you can be made accountable for that goal or you can be pressured over that goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a friend who's a mortician. I hadn't talked to her in many years, but we recently reconnected because of COVID. And what she said to me is, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not running a charity, right? And it fucking sucks how much money I've made on COVID deaths. I feel disgusting. <laughs> like, so I started a mask block because I don't know what else to fucking do. But it's not like, you know, all of this death is, is again, necessarily a bad thing from the position of the state, from the position of, 
you know, this, what is the plan? Is the plan getting back to normal economic production? Then, yeah, if that's your goal, like, and the cost is X many dead, right? It's just a matter of finding the right amount of dead that they've decided they can live with, you know? Right, and and managing the distribution of of where those deaths are going to be concentrated. Regularizing it, Mm -hmm. making it predictable, uh, not reducing it uh, to the lowest level possible or to zero. Exactly, yeah. Let's jump back into the timeline. As we mentioned, far from, like, you know, May 11th, far from the end, uh, and uh, we're now arrived at what, I'm kind of designating part three, 2023 after the end of the public health emergency, um, May 11th and onwards. So um, while we are still here in May, uh, there are a couple of other important things we need to touch on. The first is that the unwinding is kicking into full swing in May as all of this, you know, end of the public health emergency stuff is happening. As I mentioned before, states started their unwinding processes in a staggered fashion, a few clusters at a time. That very small handful of states started in April. A bigger group starts in May. Here are those states. Uh, So in May, the following states begin their unwinding process. Connecticut, Florida, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, New Mexico, the Northern Mariana Islands Territory, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Utah, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. So keep this in mind as we get to the figures of how many people start to get kicked off of their social safety net insurance. The first numbers that come out, which are dramatic, are actually low uh, because reporting is always delayed. Um, Another important development on May 9th, the California State Supreme Court hears oral arguments in Cusiemba versus Victory Woodworks, a closely watched case concerning so-called take-home covid The case centers on a worker's claim that he caught COVID on the job in early 2020 as a result of his employer's negligence and flaunting of local public health regulations, and that he then brought it home to his wife, who became seriously ill and was hospitalized for weeks. Kusiemba, the worker, loses in a decision handed down in July. Um, We did a whole episode on this case with Nate Holdren. Highly recommend it. It's very fucked up. Uh, but the occasion of the year in review format allows me to bring in one thing I completely forgot to mention in our episode about it, which is the following quote from the oral arguments in the case, uh, which happened in May. So Robert Dunn testifying on behalf of Victory Woodworks said, if you greenlight this duty, as in if you hear in favor of Kusiemba, It's even hard to see how you would limit it to COVID. I mean, influenza every year kills 20,000 to 80,000 people, and we've just never sort of put it on the employers to say, well, you're responsible for anyone at home who gets sick. (sighs) To round out May, uh, let's look at the discourse. Um, This one comes not from some pundit crank, but from Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, so (laughs) a crank who happens to be a judge. Quote, Since March 2020, we have experienced the greatest intrusions on civil liberties in the peacetime history of this country. Executive officials across the country. As your phone is collecting every single piece of information about every single thing you're doing. Like, yeah, give me a break. He's a Supreme Court justice. He doesn't know anything about technology. (laughs) Um, Executive officials across the country issued emergency decrees on a breathtaking scale. Governors and local leaders (laughs) imposed lockdown orders, forcing people to remain in their homes. They shuttered businesses and schools, public and private. 
Sorry. Uh, <laughs> they closed churches even as they allowed casinos and other favored businesses to carry on, unquote. Well, um, no one's saying churches should have stayed open. Yeah, I mean, I was in favor of closing casino. I love the uh, the old school morality of it, though. Like, <laughs> dens yes. of vice were allowed to remain open. <laughs> this I, I love this because it's just like one of those classic, you know... Uh, examples of the the imagined giant covid police state that was or something Mm, anyway mm. um this this is i would note uh from an official court document in a case on title 42 which i wish there was uh more room to put information in uh in this timeline but we did an episode about it with silky shaw i would recommend um but so it was a quote from an official court document um not like gorsuch speaking off the cuff on bill maher or something (laughs) though you could be fooled So this brings us to June 2023. With so much of the COVID response disassembled and the public health emergency now officially a thing of the past, the Biden administration turned inward to disassemble the COVID team itself. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, still at work in June, had already announced that she will be leaving the CDC at the end of the month. We will return to Walensky in a moment. In early June, on the 8th, it's announced that Ashish Jha, too, will step down on June 15th. With Anthony Fauci already gone, having left at the end of 2022, this means that by the end of June, practically every high-profile face of the COVID response will be officially out of sight and out of mind in time for the next year's election, despite the fact that Jeff Zients, one of the most powerful figures of the COVID response overall, is now in a position of greater power. But of course, as we talked about, he remains still much lower profile than any of the others when it comes to taking public accountability or responsibility for COVID. On June 6th, for the first time in a while, a Biden administration official repeats the old, uh, I don't know if at this point it's, uh, you know, this far on, it's better to call it a pandemic of the unvaccinated line or the winter of severe illness and death line, which are basically the same line. Um, But speaking at Politico's healthcare summit, HHS head Javier Becerra says the people who are still dying from COVID are, quote, either unvaccinated or undervaccinated, and that, quote, if you're dying of COVID today, you didn't take precautions, unquote. <sighs> On June 16th, Mandy Cohen is announced as Biden's pick to replace Walensky as the new director of the CDC. We did a whole episode on this called Who is Mandy Cohen? But I'll say some highlights of what we knew about her before she came in. We knew she was probably handpicked by Jeff Science because of their time together in the government during the Obama administration. We know that as health secretary of the state of North Carolina, Cohen said multiple times that she was open to adding work requirements to the state's Medicaid program, which, as Phil pointed out on that episode, beyond being just an explicitly right wing position for any Democrat to take is actually illegal, uh, at least for now. Uh, We'll have to see what fresh hells are coming. Um, Now, I'll also add one thing we know now that we didn't know when we recorded that episode, which is that the moment Cohen would come into the CDC. She immediately started having her social media team post pictures of her running around of the CDC's Atlanta headquarters maskless. This included famously in her first week on the job, posting a selfie where the one person masking in the photo appears to have been deliberately cropped out. Oh my God. <laughs> no. I remember that. I'll, <laughs> I'll, um, we're going to do a transcript of this, so I'll make sure that that's a link, uh, nice, <laughs> on, on nice. that. Um, to, to the actual post itself because it's uh it's like comically off it, it's like it, it really look it anyway finally and not to be 
you know, referencing a, a right-wing publication here, but I think it's indicative, and I think that the characterization was apt. When Cohen's name started circulating as the likely pick, the New York Post ran this headline, June 2nd, quote, Biden's likely pick for new CDC director loosely followed her own COVID protocols, comma, laughed off lockdowns, unquote. L-O-L, laughing <laughs> off lockdowns. <laughs> God. Um, again, more on Cohen and past episodes, but it seems pretty clear that Cohen's job is similar uh, to why Ashish jaw was brought in the previous year, which is to allay fears, change the face of the response, and smooth out the transition to a putatively post-pandemic uh, environment as quickly as possible. On June 27th, a few days before Rochelle Walensky's exit, Walensky publishes an opinion piece in the New York Times. If you go look it up now, the headline currently reads, What I Need to Tell America Before I Leave the CDC. But I prefer the original title, the one that they silently changed a day or two after it was first published. That original title was, quote, Our Pandemic Despair is Fading Too Quickly. Here are some highlights. Quote, The job of public health is to strike an appropriate balance between protecting the health of all those who live in the United States while minimizing the disruption to the normal functioning of society. The goal is to offer Um, science-driven recommendations that balance protection and practicality in the context of one's individual risk tolerance and value set. For example, (laughs) the question of how low rates of infections in schools need to be for them to remain open has much to do with whether you have an immunocompromised family member in the household or whether you can supplement education with personal tutors or whether you require school lunches for your child's nutritional needs. So like, let can I, yes, yeah, go for it. This is, uh, this is great. It's like, I, I always think about how, you know, the whole like structure of any number of algorithms just serves you back the things that you've chosen to see Mm-hmm. Uh, before and just you know your locks you in a permanent cultural feedback loop this is great because it's like what if public health looked at inequalities in society and said you know what rather than i, I don't know uh try, you know rather than trying to take stock of them and and deal with them or confront them let's actually build them into our strategy <laughs> let's assume not only that they exist but that they are good and that what we should try to do is make preserving them our criteria for success. That's exactly what that does. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's so interesting because it's like the clear, again, maybe I'm just inverting exactly what Phil just said, but it's so strange to blame people and blame people for having, you know, the in, like an incorrectly calibrated emotional state. And I mean, this I mean, this is what public health does as kind of an enterprise is just rationalizing these things. Um, You know, so much of what is actually social inequality just gets called bias (laughs) Um, (laughs) in like like public health research. And um, maybe this is a little bit of like a personal note, but it's been hard for me to watch public health be just, you know, this adjunct of this like ideological project of the state, you know, rationalizing all of these massive failures as like, mm, I don't know, issues with our feelings, you know, like, mm. oh, we're not feeling the right amount of despair, you know, as if because I think, you know, what that does is creates this figment of some sort of connection between like what our feelings are and what what happens um, 
at a policy level, which like we all know is, is not real. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also, I, and we've, I think this has been a consistent theme over the last four years, which is that the structure of the American state, it reproduces a certain kind of top stratum leader. Uh, and yeah. that person has been selected for the narrow way, typically, that they think about problems sort of individually, mm-hmm. um, not especially synthetically. Because when you look at something like, yeah, the, the school situation, and, and, you know, I, I, I can recall us sort of talking back, you know, as early as 2020, it's like, you know, there are a lot of uh, reasons why we weren't a pandemic ready uh, society, so to speak. Um, you know, going in um, to actually deal with that, you can't sort of look at the individual components kind of one by one and say, what if we tweak this? What if we tweak that? And it's not just like what they call a whole of government approach, which is like we bring in every agency and we ask them, like, what are some things that you could do about this? It's like a whole of, um, you know, uh, class society approach where you're like, OK, what well, <laughs> ultimately we have created a world in which. When a crisis happens, the crisis has the potential to absolutely like deepen inequalities in in profound ways. And the fascinating thing to me is that by by some, you know, it's like no one would say that the the U.S. response to all of this was like good by any means. But some things happened by who knows what divine intervention. You know, we had programs that did reduce child poverty to a greater extent than it had ever been reduced in the last few decades temporarily. And then we decided like, no, uh, that was, that's not a new set point that we want to hit. Right. Um, And I mean, who's to say like that, you know, that incident might be politically generative in the future, but it's not being politically generative now. And it wasn't when the whatever so-called center left party that you might've thought had been able to capitalize on it could have. Right. That's that's the more kind of fundamental uh, uh, takeaway for me is that by selecting for technocrats over and over again, you've produced a cadre of people who are systematically incapable of seeing the moment kind of for what it is and, and being able to use the power of government uh, to pivot in a more profound way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really great point. Mm-hmm. So. While we're on the topic of Rochelle Walensky's exit, I'm going to fold something in here that happens slightly later. Uh, so in early July on the 7th, the New York Times publishes an interview with Walensky that is actually a fascinating read. Mm-hmm. It is conducted by David Wallace-Wells. Um, in the interview, Wallace-Wells attempts to get Walensky to respond to a number of points that actually echo our criticisms of the Biden administration's pandemic response, especially those from uh, COVID year three, the, the episode that we put together last year. Um, I'm going to read only some snippets of this, but I'm going to link to our episode that we did about it in the description. Uh, it's a patron episode called Walensky responds, um, where we go through the whole thing, not the whole thing, but like a lot, quite a bit of it actually, um, to see what we learn from it and what is kind of, uh, confirmed by it. And mostly what we learned, I think, was that our assessment of what the Biden administration was thinking, our assessment of their internal strategy has been pretty spot on. Um, so in this interview, among other things, uh, again, just going to go for some highlights. Walensky says of ongoing COVID deaths that, quote, ultimately it became that you valued your health only according to how you voted, 
unquote, repeating the old inaccurate COVID red, COVID blue thing that COVID mm-hmm. is now just a problem for Republican anti-vaxxers or something. Wallace Wells asks her also repeatedly about breakthrough deaths, uh, which was a major theme of our last year in review episode, COVID year three. Um, by the way, just to a note here the cdc data set we used to look at breakthrough deaths uh hasn't been hasn't seen any updates with 2023 data so uh or else i you know would have been probably reading them out to you this whole time but uh you know we just don't have that right now so wallace wells uh brings in that quote uh asking walensky uh quote in early august of 2021 you told cnn that breakthrough infections caused mild illness quoting walensky quote they are staying out of the hospital, they are not dying, and I think that that's the most important thing to understand. At the time, about 5% of American deaths were among the vaccinated, but the share would quickly grow to 22% by September and 41% by January 2022. Walensky responds, quote, It's an interesting question and an interesting conversation that we can have. We did an assessment of who was dying. And we published it in November, I believe. And part of that was showing that these people who are dying from COVID are those who have very high rates of comorbidity. Some of them are dying at home. Some of them are dying in hospice. That is not to dismiss their death. (laughs) They're important deaths. But the character of the kind of person who was dying is different. Mm. Yuck. Um, the study she's talking about, by the way, an MMWR, uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. We expand on this in that episode, but I will just say the comment she's making is based on data from 36 deaths. So kind of a paper thin thing to hang your argument on. Anyway, I uh, said it before, said it a million times, but, uh, you know, we're as as kind of I think Phil was just alluding to, too, uh, you know, we're interested in Walensky's responses here insofar as she's an avatar of the state uh, figure involved in the decision making sure but ultimately part of a much bigger process uh within the biden administration and the federal government um but this does this whole thing does tell us a lot about what they were talking about in the early years of the earlier years of the biden administration she does seem um, like a nightmare personally though i'm just gonna add that as well <laughs> um as all of this is happening of course the effects of the end of the public health emergency are already being felt despite the fact that the biden administration has sworn up and down that the end of the public health emergency won't mean that vaccines and treatments are no longer free by june we've already heard plenty of stories of people getting denied the vaccine or paxlovid by insurance or it just being completely unavailable where they are actually uh we in fact uh, read a selection of listener stories about this happening to them on an episode from early june called covid in an abandoned field um to turn back to the unwinding for a moment, like I've noted for previous months, Medicaid unwinding is a rolling process. Uh, it'll take about a year. So for June, here are the states that begin. Uh, this is the June is the month with the biggest set of states that begin their unwinding. They uh, states and territories. Uh, they are Alabama, Alaska, Colorado, D.C., Georgia, Hawaii, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Montana, Nevada. New Jersey, North Dakota, Puerto Rico, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Washington, and Wisconsin. Keep in mind, again, because data on this is lacking, it will still be another two months or so in the timeline uh, before we have data on these states on how many people they've kicked off. Um, But June is the very first month that we get any insight into how dramatic the unwinding is. 
and the numbers are not great. Uh, according to a Kaiser Health News piece from June 1st called, quote, as Medicaid purge begins, staggering numbers of Americans lose coverage. Um, already from the very first data with just 12 states reporting really, again, preliminary data, there are already 600,000 confirmed disenrollments from Medicaid. Um, those states, those 12 states don't stop, by the way, obviously. Uh, it's you know just the early numbers that are reported. Many of these denials immediately, it becomes clear, are also happening for what are called procedural reasons. Uh, in other words, paperwork errors, or I would say more simply, the high amount of administrative burdens in the regular Medicaid system that essentially is built to constantly be kicking people off for minor technicalities, um, what is also known as the lovely grotesque term churn. Uh, we've talked about that plenty on the show in the last year. Politico also reports on June 14th that some states are kicking people off of the Medicaid rolls simply because of software glitches to read from that report, which um, concerns Medicaid in Arkansas. Quote, three Medicaid eligibility workers who were granted anonymity to speak freely about their work told Politico that they have seen those glitches with the state's uh, Arkansas's new eligibility system, which was developed by the consulting firm Deloitte as part of a $340 million contract and launched in December 2020. The workers said they call them glitches because they seem to happen right after a system update is performed and because there's nothing in clients' files to explain the terminations, unquote. God. In other words, we have, in the first month that information is available at all about this impact of the unwinding, not only are the numbers bad, not only is it clear that a lot of people are losing their coverage already because of, you know, quote-unquote procedural reasons, also, we have reporting that is showing that essentially like bad software created by a management consulting firm <laughs> is automatically disenrolling people just as a oopsie. Um, and this again, this is publicly reported Biden administration does not act on this. Um, one final note uh, on the unwinding. Also in June, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation also releases the results of a poll on what the general public thinks is happening with regards to Medicaid. I will read from their written report on the poll, quote, most Medicaid enrollees were not aware that states are now permitted to resume disenrolling people from the Medicaid program. Roughly two thirds, 65% of all Medicaid enrollees say they are not sure if states are now allowed to remove people from Medicaid if they no longer meet the eligibility requirements or don't complete the renewal process, with an additional 7% incorrectly saying states will not be allowed to do this. Three in four adults 65 and older say they are unsure if states are allowed to remove people from Medicaid, and black adults are more likely than white adults to incorrectly say that states will not be allowed to do this. Just under three in 10, 28% overall, are aware states are now allowed to remove people from Medicaid. Finally, adding, quote, nearly half of Medicaid enrollees say they have not previously been through the Medicaid renewal process. In other words, a lot of people don't even know that this is happening. Uh, and if it's happening to them, don't know what like what is happening or why it's happening. And I'm just going to say, why should they? Um, right. Frank, I'm just going to, you know, they shouldn't have to know. First of all, we should have just like have a free national health system. But on top of that, I mean, you've paused redeterminations, a key part of Medicaid for basically three years, many people on Medicaid. And remember, there are some 90 million of them by April 1st. Many of these people may not have previously experienced uh, the worst version of the system that was set up to kick people off all the time. 
Uh, you basically showed them how much more generous the state could be and then yanked it away. So um, it's also worth noting the Biden administration has the power to stop this. They can intervene. They could have done it then and they can still do it now. Um, but back then, especially HHS could have put the brakes on redeterminations, especially after seeing, as we also learn in June, that there are states like Indiana, where we already know 89% of their Medicaid denials were those so-called procedural reasons. So anyway, they don't stop it though. Instead, Javier Becerra sends what I cannot even call in good conscience, a strongly worded letter, uh, to states, some states, uh, here's a bit of that dated June 12th quote. Given the high number of people losing coverage due to administrative processes, I urge you to review your state's current elected flexibilities and consider going further to take up existing and new policy options that we have offered to protect eligible individuals and families from procedural termination. Uh, He goes on to make a few very, very low impact recommendations such as, hey, you've got a whole year. Why not space the denials out more over time? Anyway. Your June in the discourse treat is simply a headline. Uh, June 5th, LA Times. Opinion. We've made huge advances against COVID. Why is it still killing so many people? (laughs) Why indeed? July. uh, July 2023. This brings us to July. Um, I'm going to break with tradition and not start with the Biden administration for July. Uh, On July 6th, the decision comes down in the previously mentioned Kusiemba versus Victory Woodworks case. The California State Supreme Court case I mentioned earlier, um, recall that this case was over a worker's ability to sue under workers' comp after a worker brought home COVID to his wife and she became so ill she was hospitalized for weeks. Court says no, couldn't possibly. Once again, I'll plug the episode we did with Nate Holdren on this, which was called Unlimited Liabilities, uh, if you want more details. But here is some of what the actual language from that court decision in July sounds like. Quote, While employers may already be required to implement health and safety protocols to protect their employees from COVID-19 infections, concluding they owe a duty to the household members of employees has the potential to alter employers' behavior in ways that are harmful to society. Uh, Because it is impossible to eliminate the risk of infection, even with perfect implementation of best practices, the prospect of liability for infections outside the workplace could encourage employers to adopt precautions that unduly slow the delivery of essential services to the public. There is simply no limit to how wide the net will be cast if we if we ruled in favor of Kusiemba. The wife who claims her husband caught COVID-19 from the supermarket checker, the husband who claims his wife caught it while visiting an elder care home, the member of a sorority who claims a sister while serving on jury duty, caught it from the court bailiff. All these people would have potential claims against entities deemed essential to society's ability to function. The financial burden that duty would impose on employers would be devastating. Mm-hmm. Even if that duty were limited to the employee's household, the expansion of liability would be too great in the wake of a replicating virus. Couldn't have that. Our How money or your life. <laughs> right. What a classic capitalist dilemma. If we mm-hmm. were to route this through the normative contractual arrangement of our society, the society would immediately collapse. Therefore, we can't do anything ever. <laughs> we have to just ignore this. They, uh, you know... In, in a way, they basically, they wrote health communism for us, yeah, uh, yeah, sort yeah, of. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we were trying to, that's one <laughs> of the things we version. were trying to prove. Yeah, reverse version. Um, just a last thing to say, I guess, um, you know, maybe the most important observation I think I have about this, uh, 
like this decision i think is very interesting because it unites two potentially very contradictory positions uh on the one hand they're saying COVID is so pervasive it's just a fact of life now not employer liability and evidence for that their you know their evidence for that is essentially that the pandemic is over by which you know basically is meant like the public health emergency is over um as they say quote it is impossible to eliminate the risk of infection unquote at this point um but then on the other hand they're saying that if the employer were to be liable we know that there would be so much harm happening from covid that there would be this wave of lawsuits that um, that would bury employers in the co- and the court system itself you know what i mean yeah um you know i mean it, it's somewhat contradictory it is basically like the whole you know quote unquote covid is over argument in a nutshell ridiculous next um the big news in july though is that even with our warning indicators and data collection systems stripped for parts it's clear to everyone that there is a huge wave happening this is the month where the headline i read way way earlier two hours ago or something um comes from which is the headline from forbes quote has covid19 become a summer illness cases and hospitalizations are on the rise again Again, uh, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by the media's willingness to print shock and awe every time there's a wave uh, when it's not the height of flu season or something, because as we've talked about, you know, we've seen this over and over again. It clearly doesn't go away. It's not really seasonal. This does lead to some jaw dropping or maybe even at this point unintentionally funny uh, other headlines that try to cover the summer wave. I'm going to combine some here uh, of the pieces that ran in July and August because that whole span of two months, um, there were a bunch of these articles that did this kind of like, wait, there's still COVID thing. Um, So stop me if you remember any of these, uh, which we talked about in an episode called The New, 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 New Normal. (laughs) Um, Slate, August 4th, COVID hospitalizations are going up. Are we dot, dot, dot in a surge? my god that one Ah! politico july 31st covid cases are climbing but don't be alarmed (laughs) the hill august 1st covid hospital admissions jump in what could be a new norm of summer surges new york times august 2nd 2023 amid signs of covid uptick researchers brace for the new normal and finally (laughs) uh washington post august 7th covid or a summer cold question mark (laughs) without free tests many won't know um that one's a little sad while i could suppose all of this embrace the new 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 normal uh could easily pass for july's top discourse we've got something much better than that uh so first runner up for discourse of the month is july 17th the new york times's david leonhart publishes a piece called a positive covid milestone In it, among other things, he casts copious doubt on a discussion that is very much on the rise, which is to look to excess mortality data from the CDC, noting that it is much higher than it should be, or, you know, that it might be expected to be, or much higher than what the official COVID case count is, and pointing out that that excess death figure, you know, probably gives us a better picture of where COVID deaths are actually at. By July, this is basically one of the best ways for people to understand how many COVID deaths are happening, especially since the CDC's public-facing tools have, as I mentioned before, changed now to just show a percentage change in COVID deaths week on week. Um, Not to get ahead of myself, but it may not surprise you that the CDC decides to stop doing the excess deaths calculation later in the year by, I think, September. Anyway, um, in this article, Leonhardt is drawing from the same excess deaths data to say that it shows the pandemic is actually over. Um, He also quotes Ashish Jha a few times because I guess despite the fact that by this point Jha was no longer in the White House, he couldn't help himself. Um, (laughs) Still good for it. Yeah. You can always count on him. 
Leonhardt uses Jaws' expert opinions to assert that basically all the immunocompromised people complaining about COVID aren't as at risk as they say they are. He then concludes with the following. Uh, Leonhardt writes, quote, Almost a year ago, President Biden angered some public health experts when he declared the pandemic is over. He may have been premature to make that declaration, but the excess death milestone suggests that it's true now. The pandemic is finally over. Um, again, I know this has taken a long time to pay off, but you see why we had to start in September 2022. Oh, it's so <laughs> um, aggravating. This is... <sighs> still, though, remember, that was the runner-up for Discourse of the Month. The top yeah. pick for July 2023 in the COVID discourse comes from none other than Ashish Shah himself, <sighs> who rounds out the month with a July 31st op-ed in the Boston Globe called With a Few Basic Steps, Most of Us Can Finally Ignore COVID. <sighs> Just Emphasis a reminder on again, most of us. Yeah, just a reminder again, Ashish Shah doesn't work for the Biden administration anymore. Uh, he's just doing this for clout. Uh, doesn't seem too self-aware, I guess. Um, we also talked about this in that episode I mentioned earlier, the new, 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 new normal. Um, but basically the whole op-ed is a masterpiece of magical thinking. He repeats his old line from when he was in the administration that we can now prevent every death. He turns a new phrase to assert that only the, quote, profoundly immune compromised have to worry about the virus. And for good measure, he just straight up pretends that long COVID is more or less done and dusted. Um, I'm not going to read from this piece because we read a lot of it in that episode I mentioned. But what I will do is reread a rebuttal that the Boston Globe printed sometime later, which I also read on that episode. So here is Ezra J. Spears rebuttal to Ashish Jha's op-ed also printed in the Boston Globe. Quote, I would love nothing more than to finally ignore COVID, as the headline to Dr. Ashish Jha's July 31st op-ed reads. As a healthy, vaccinated, and recently boosted 35-year-old, I did what he said. I ignored COVID-19 on a weekend trip with friends in September 2022, but the infection I got as a result has all but destroyed my life. A week after my infection, I began to experience intense fatigue, overwhelming headaches, and cognitive challenges that continue to this day. These symptoms are debilitating. I can no longer work, socialize, or travel. My finances are dire. And if I am unable to avoid another infection, my condition may deteriorate further. Jaw wrote of long COVID quote-unquote treatments being promising. Perhaps he could clarify what treatments he's referring to because my doctors say that there are no approved treatments for long COVID. A recent study funded by the NIH's Recover Initiative showed that 10% of adults infected with COVID still have symptoms six months later, even with vaccination. By downplaying the prevalence and debilitating outcomes of even moderate long COVID, Jaws signing thousands of people up to the misery and despair with which I live every day. Unquote. Before we move on, uh, just a note on the unwinding. By July, we learned that 4 million people have lost Medicaid coverage so far. And a new set of states starts their unwinding process. Um, those states are California, Delaware, Illinois, Louisiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, New York, and North Carolina. This leaves just one state that had not yet started, Oregon, the lone state to not start their unwinding process until October. This brings us to August 2023. Now we're getting into very recent history territory. Um, as what is referred to as the summer wave continues, Ashish Jha isn't the only former White House official to crawl out of the woodwork for an ill-advised spin in the spotlight. On August 28th, Anthony Fauci tells the BBC, quote, I doubt very seriously whether you're going to see the hospital and death surge that we've seen in the past, even if we get a surge of infections. 
because there's enough fundamental community level protection that even though you'll find the vulnerable will fall by the wayside, <laughs> they'll get infected, they'll get hospitalized, and some of them will die. It's not going to be the tsunami of cases that we've seen. Wow, I love, love. <laughs> that's very Hippocratic. I love it. Love to fall by the wayside. Yeah. Well, cool, 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 cool. I feel like so much of the conversation last year has been like, okay, you know, we really watched the disposability of certain segments of the population get set up in late 2021. And that was articulated so clearly by a lot of the changes that were done in 2022, particularly the switch of the map, the going from the Uh red, Mm -hmm. uh, yellow, and blue and orange map to the little sherbet map (laughs) overnight and calm and calming pastels, right? And all of a sudden the map's all green. All of these kinds of things that we saw where, you know... (sighs) And these are the, I mean, obviously this is stuff we've been pushing back on and we've been talking about over and over, but I just want to like show how quickly and completely actually protecting the vulnerable actually disappears as a goal. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. In 2020, it was centralized by 2023. It doesn't even need to be discussed because who is dying and who is vulnerable is like de facto common sense already. Right. And yet further, the focus this year has been undermining the credibility of that group, one. Two, emphasizing that that group is actually much smaller than you might think. Three, emphasizing that people in that group are misinformed about their risk. And most of them are, you know, mentally ill. And that's really the biggest crisis here Mm. is one of lockdowns and Really, we just need to see each other's smiles again. You know, this kind of like proof that 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 COVID is like somehow just only going for the vulnerable, right? Like doesn't even need to be brought up anymore. It is just like considered just like the baseline. Yeah, everybody's in agreement, mm-hmm. you know, to the, to the point that that Fauci will casually throw off. Yeah, the vulnerable will fall to the wayside, but, you know. And die. Like, That's what he said. Die. Right. But the. You know, the, the reporter is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, right. like that's just like, it's not just like, oh, what do you mean? Like vulnerable people are dying. Like everybody gets that now. Does it change anyone's opinion about how we should respond to the pandemic? No, not really. Right. And I think this is where it's also important to think about, is this direct prejudice? Are we saying society hates sick people or can we look at this in the sort of structural sense and say, that is probably because fundamentally in you know our political economy we put a kind of economic valuation on everyone's life quite literally um people who are sick who are disabled who are chronically ill we are calculated down and valued at a lesser amount than people that are quote unquote healthy people who are out of the workforce retired nursing homes, already sick, the vulnerable who are falling to the wayside. You know, this is not such a big deal because we understand all of those people who are part of the surplus class as less valuable. So Mm -hmm. it's in the world of cost-benefit analysis, not a huge loss here, right? And so like the disposability, right? It's not just like fuck sick people, it's a much larger kind of economic calculus that says society isn't for you, you mm-hmm. fucking yeah, sick people. Exactly. The needs of sick people 
vulnerable people, however we want to construe that group, are incompatible. Like, what was that Deloitte report? Um, incompatible with like the economic functioning of society. Um, <laughs> right. And, and so, I mean, it's so classic that instead of thinking like, hmm, like maybe something's fucked up about the economic functioning of society then, um, you know, that like the, the whole role, I mean, you know, we talk about this a lot with um, Nate Holdren and like the, the concept of, of social murder generally, like the whole Biden pandemic response, it's it's really just an example of how the state responds to, you know, social murder by just kind of like reorganizing it and, and redistributing it to the sectors of society that are, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like, like you're saying, be, you know, considered surplus, like economically valued less. And I mean, that that is like that is a real that is a real structural thing, I think, that like the science is just kind of an inadequate answer to. And I I mean, I've struggled with this a lot because it's like, oh, my God, well, the science is so clear, you know, that we should do all these things. But this is really it. Right. Like that the that what it would take in terms of, you know, getting the virus under control in terms of uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions, you know, permanent changes to how we conduct public life, like those things are incompatible with the like house of cards of, you know, profit extraction and accumulation um, that that is the United States. And I feel like that is a really, really big. um, That's just like a really big thing for, I think, the left to be thinking about, Um, Mm -hmm. which I mean, I don't have high hopes that the left will be thinking about it. But um, I think that's like that's a very. Well, it's, yeah, it's why it's so essentially frustrating for the left to have not risen to this occasion. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. To put it that way. So, so that Fauci quote is bad, uh, but current Biden <laughs> officials don't do much better. Of course, um, while much of the administration seems to be conspicuously ignoring the surge on August twenty fifth, Mandy Cohen posts a video in the format of a sort of faux Q and A. Uh, in that video, she says, "Question quote I keep hearing on the news." that hospitalizations for COVID are going up. Should I be concerned? Answer, quote, Okay, so we're seeing an increase in hospitalizations for COVID-19, recently up to 10,000 people being in the hospital with COVID a week. However, as a reminder, last year we saw up to 40,000 hospitalizations a week at our highest point last August. So we're in a much different and better place in August 2023. Different and better place with You'll hear a lot more of that, I'm sure, in the future. Um, but yeah, this is the classic, like, you may have heard 10,000 people are hospitalized every week from COVID. Don't worry, 10,000 is less than 40,000. Could y'all imagine if every time, like, you were all, like, not feeling well and we recorded the show and you came in and you were like, oh, I feel really shitty today. I'd be like, yeah, but not as shitty as I do. Right. So we're yeah. all good. Right. <laughs> not, not as shitty as you said you felt last week. Yeah. <laughs> As Cohen says this, COVID deaths by the official count tick right back up over to 1,000 a week territory. The week ending August 26th, the CDC registers 1,034 COVID deaths. But again, you wouldn't know it from listening to Cohen speak or from listening to the Biden administration or even really from a glance at the CDC's website. uh, Because, again, for the most part, the CDC is reporting deaths like other metrics as a percent change now week on week, as though that means fucking anything. Speaking of the CDC, one thing this timeline doesn't include a lot of detail on is the still ongoing saga of the CDC's revision to its infection control guidelines for healthcare settings. All the episodes that we've done on that are pretty recent, so I'll link to that in the description. Um, 
uh, link to the episodes that we have done on this with Jane from National Nurses United. Um, in June, the CDC's committee known as HICPAC had met to discuss new guideline changes that would drastically reduce infection control standards um, in healthcare settings, including asserting that surgical masks are as good as N95s uh, for healthcare workers. A vote to finalize the guidance, uh, that guidance change, had been scheduled for August, but when a huge block of the public, including a bunch of our listeners, uh, sign up to attend the meeting and protest the changes in public comment, they quietly move the vote to November. And while they did vote to approve those changes at that meeting in November, there is going to be a, a uh, chance to comment when it hits the federal register. And we'll be watching for that to help the campaign against this. So, um, but I mentioned that here at August in the timeline, because the public comment section for that meeting in August was great. Uh, people really came prepared and really laid into them. Elsewhere, uh, Pfizer shares start to slide as it becomes clear that in an environment where it's been asserted that the pandemic is no longer a big deal and without a guaranteed windfall of infinite U.S. government purchasing, less people are probably going to get the COVID vaccines and drugs in the future. I bring this up because this shows some of the obvious flaws in allowing private actors with profit motives to play such a huge role in healthcare. Um, sees pharma is what I'm saying. Mm. The following is a quote from a Wall Street Journal article from August 6th called Pfizer's COVID boost crashes to earth, quote, should sales fail to materialize, Pfizer is prepared to trim R&D spending for COVID-19 and other disease areas, Chief Executive Albert Borla said in an interview, quote, we are moving post-COVID, Borla said. On the unwinding front, by August, the number of confirmed Medicaid disenrollments climbs to about 5 million. We also find out that across all states reporting, a full 75% of all disenrollments thus far have been for procedural reasons. Uh, Again, in other words, administered burdens and technical errors. Instead of taking action, the Biden administration prioritizes activities that make it look like they're taking Medicaid unwinding seriously. They release a set of previously sent form letters, about 50 of them, that they have sent to states to ask them nicely to slow things down. And uh, Nira Tandon hosts what Politico calls a, quote, closed-door session with several health advocacy groups aimed at reassuring advocates that the issue remains a top priority for the White House amid simmering frustration over the administration's reluctance to take stronger action against states that are drastically winnowing their Medicaid populations, Mm. unquote. That is a mouthful. September 2023. As with past years, uh, I'm going to put a little less detail in the fall months, as I mentioned, because they're quite recent. But also because this is recent history, I'm also going to start calling out more uh, death figures more explicitly, um, because I really don't think that people realize how many people are still dying from COVID. Um, So to start with that, I'm just going to start September with the death figures uh, from that month. Here's what the CDC reports. Week ending September 2nd, which I guess incorporates August, part of it. Uh, week ending September 2nd, 1,170 deaths. Week ending September 9th, 1,290 deaths. Ending September 16th, 1,378 deaths. Week ending September 23rd, 1,385 deaths. And the week ending September 30th, there were 1,409 deaths. So there is a pattern for you. Um, speaking of which, I just want to highlight one thing. Uh, we've said many times it's basically impossible to know uh, what to make of the data exactly, but one statistic that comes out in September just absolutely blew my mind uh, when I read it. 
So Pfizer CEO Albert Borla uh, speaking at the Cantor Fitzgerald Annual Healthcare Conference on September 26th claims that nearly 250,000 courses of Paxlovid were being administered in the U.S. per week. 250,000 per week. Mm. Um, the reason I'm mentioning this, I just want to pause on, on this because I think it's kind of staggering. Just like, Just think about that. I don't know what percentage of people who get seriously ill from COVID end up getting Paxlovid or like a Paxlovid prescription. But my assumption would be that the conversion rate on that is probably not that high. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, I think with prescribers, I think people are kind of reluctant uh, yeah. often. It, 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 there, there has to be a good case for prescribing it. Right. So if this is true, if there are 250,000 um, courses of, you know, that's not like individual, like the course of Paxlovid right. being prescribed every week. I mean, that's just an incredible amount of COVID cases. That's a, a lot of community level transmission. It's a small percentage of the total transmission. Most yeah. likely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's an indirect data point, but it is a fucking mind blowing one. It really um, is. Yeah. So anyway. I mean, this is what happens if you turn off the spigot, right? Like you can't see the the infections. You have to deliberately try and look at it the way that you've just laid it out, right? Like if we look at Paxlovid and then we think about Paxlovid just being a small percentage of the amount of infections that we're going to see in an average um, spread, right? Because not everybody is going to be able to get it. But the the thing that's just uh, so difficult, right, is that unless you're willing to do that legwork, like what do you actually have to work with in terms of, let's say, reporting even? And so yeah. people who, you know, were doing some coverage on this, I think you're seeing even less like uh, semi-good or half-decent coverage of COVID because there's just not material to work with unless you're willing to, you know, go digging for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, uh, by the end of September, the CDC also stops reporting its excess deaths estimates, uh, meaning that we lose yet another indicator we could have used to understand what's happening with COVID. Uh, that's just two months after that Leon Hart article I mentioned. On the Biden administration front in early September, Biden's wife, Jill, tests positive for COVID. I think a piece from Politico describes what happened next pretty succinctly. Uh, this is from September 6th, headlined, Biden appears to be over COVID protocols. They write, quote, for two days straight, the White House told anyone who would listen that President Joe Biden was taking his COVID exposure seriously by following a strict set of public health precautions. Then Biden strode into a room full of people on Wednesday and reduced those precautions to a punchline. Quote, I've been tested again today. I'm clear across the board, Biden said, smiling as he held up his face mask. They keep telling me because it has to be 10 days or something, I gotta keep wearing it. But don't tell them I didn't have it when I walked in. That all happened quite publicly, but the piece also offers this interesting detail, quote, inside the administration, some senior officials have argued in favor of minimizing the amount of time the White House itself spends publicly talking about COVID issues, said two Democrats familiar with the dynamics who were granted anonymity to speak freely, unquote. And this, I think, overall resonates quite specifically with, I think, what one of my big takeaways uh, from this year ultimately is, which is that, you know, we're now in an environment that's pretty different from before where, you know, once there were certain protections or policies and social safety net programs left to undo and, you know, Biden administration comments to cry foul over and a constant stream of normalization work done by a cottage industry of minimizers. But now at this point, like much of what was left to undo has been undone. Um, 
there's much less of a base or a wall, I guess, to push back against. And so now we're in that circumstance where like we have to be more creative um, in a forward looking vision, I suppose. And with our demands, um, we can talk about this in a bit. But this is what I think of when I hear of like the Biden administration intentionally not giving people things to talk about regarding COVID, basically. Anyway, also in September, updated vaccine booster doses roll out. Um, we mentioned this a little bit earlier uh, when we we're talking about Phil's vaccine dose which took for fucking ever for him to get even this is the first covid vaccine update rollout that is attempted under the new regime of vaccines having been kicked to the private market the press refers to this rollout as a quote-unquote bumpy start or bumpy rollout but it's a disaster basically as we've talked about at length and it's the inevitable consequence of privatizing the covid response Um, even health policy analysts who have personally tried to assure me that COVID commercialization was going to be no big deal, uh, literally end up tweeting out that they can't get a vaccine without paying over $100 for it. Um, and a reminder, uh, e- you know, even if you have insurance, it's now a question of whether the place that you're getting it is in network. Um, so while one person may have a very easy time getting it, um, you know, for a lot of people, the experience can be quite different. And now additionally, now that every individual healthcare setting or pharmacy is on the hook for ordering and paying for the vaccine, you know, stock orders and holding them uh, to be reimbursed only later by insurance. You know, that in itself explains a lot of the issue with distribution. Um, Gotta love health under capitalism. Um, We have not one, but two pieces of top COVID discourse for September. The first is this New York Times headline from September 7th. COVID continues to rise but experts remain optimistic. I just like this headline. Bully for them. (laughs) I like this headline because I like to think about how that could have been printed really any time in the last three or four years. That's Mm -hmm. indistinguishable from most of the headlines. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a masterpiece. Remarkable. The second piece of discourse I have for you all is a more explicitly garish one. September 6th Substack post from Vinay Prasad. Remarkably, his first time coming up in this timeline. Post is titled, Do Not Report COVID Cases to Schools and Do Not Test Yourself If You Feel Ill. A classic. Prasad writes, The only option left for remaining sensible people is to no longer comply in the system that yields this outcome. If your child is sick, do not test that child for COVID. When they look good enough for school, send them in. If you're sick... Look good enough? Yeah. Look good enough. If you're sick, do not test yourself. Um, if anyone is sick, do not tell your employer or school. And it goes on like this. Um, complain to your employer about any mandates or declination forms, for example. And then ending with, quote, in my estimation, it is the only logical course left. The strategy makes sense. It's time to go dark with all COVID data. If enough people don't participate, the irrationality will stop eventually, unquote. And with that, our enemies have invented, I guess, a kind of bastardized version of collective action. Um, <laughs> there's one other big Vinay Prasad thing in September, but I'm going to get back to that in just a second. Um, before we move on, by the end of September, about 7 million people are confirmed to have lost their Medicaid. As Beatrice tells Truth Out, quote, it's the largest simultaneous disenrollment in American history. This is going to become the healthcare legacy of the Biden presidency, unquote. This brings us to October 2023, uh, and this month I'm also going to start with death numbers and then move directly into the discourse. As usual, these numbers are from the CDC, but buried behind the percentage change figures on the website. So week ending October 7th, 1,339 deaths, 
Week ending October 14th, 1,268 deaths. Week ending October 21st, 1,311 deaths. And the week ending October 28th, 1,228 deaths. In the discourse for October, thanks to a piece that runs in The Lancet, there are a raft of articles that all say just about the same thing, which is, okay, sure, sure, long COVID. But what about long colds? Ever heard of that? Long colds enters the chat. Um, <laughs> I should note that obviously a whole vast array of post-viral conditions exist. So it's not that this is, you know, referring to a phenomenon that's been spun up out of whole cloth just to minimize long COVID. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the way that it's employed doesn't then, of course, immediately lead to the minimization right. of long COVID. For example, this CNN headline from October 6th, which reads, quote, there is more to worry about than long COVID study shows you could get a long cold too. I should add, of course, um, the original paper in The Lancet, I don't think uses the term long cold. Um, instead, that's something that gets coined to describe the post-viral conditions the paper's talking about. Um, what the concept of long cold is suspiciously similar to, though, is the other Viniprasad production I alluded to from September, uh, posted September 26th, but really kicking up in the discourse in early October. This is none other than Viniprasad, Tracy Beth Hogue, and Shamez Ladani's paper, yeah. How Methodological Pitfalls Have Created Widespread Misunderstanding About Long COVID. <laughs> this is another thing we did a whole episode about. It's in the patron feed. Uh, long COVID and quote-unquote methodological pitfalls is the title. In this paper, they straight up argue that the term long COVID should be abolished and claim that, quote, the existing epidemiological research on long COVID has suffered from overly broad case definitions and a striking absence of control groups, which have led to a distortion of risk. The unintended <laughs> consequences of this may include, but are not limited to, increased social anxiety and healthcare spending, a failure to diagnose other treatable conditions misdiagnosed as long COVID, and diversion of funds and attention from those who truly suffer. Motherfuckers. Um, all of this is just on the COVID front, though. Um, whereas, of course, obviously in the month of October, the settler colonial project occupying geographical Palestine uh, launches or rather escalates its brutal genocidal and annihilatory campaign on Palestinian life. Uh, Biden's immediate response to this is to say, quote, Israel has the right to defend itself full stop. When a growing movement to demand at minimum a ceasefire springs up immediately into view, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says of this movement on October 10th, quote, we're going to continue to be very clear. We believe they are wrong. We believe they are repugnant and we believe they're disgraceful, unquote. Um, and the State Department also quickly puts out a memo directing State Department officials to explicitly not use any of the following terms when speaking publicly on the matter, including de-escalation, ceasefire, end to violence, end to bloodshed, and or restoring calm. We will not be going through you know, more of this step by step on the rest of this timeline. Um, but as of this recording, 15,000 Palestinians have been killed, countless have been wounded and maimed, and large amounts of Gaza have been completely leveled. So it's important to make sure we mention this is all happening concurrently. Uh, and we can't stop showing up for Palestine until Palestine is free. So I don't know what else to say about that land oh, yeah. back free Palestine. Get out to demos if you can and wear a mask if you do. It has the dual benefit of protecting you from COVID and being good OPSEC. So moving to November now, uh, almost through with the timeline. 
Um, and if you're noticing that there's less and less COVID related Biden administration and policy stuff, that's because there is, um, they're as silent as possible. <laughs> they planned it. Yep. Um, they're as silent as possible. And, uh, most of their project of sociologically and politically constructing an end to the pandemic is unfortunately, you know, has been executed at this point. Um, in November, the World Health Organization reports a spike in an unspecified respiratory illness causing pneumonia in children in northern China. As of when we're recording this, I have precious little context for what's happening there on the ground. But what I can say is that it brings one thing roaring back into the discourse in the United States, which is immunity debt. Mm-hmm. See, we've gone full circle. I promised the recap was worth it. Um, for an example of this, here's a bit from a piece on it in nature that ran november 27th which went to of all people francois Bellou for comment <laughs> uh quote nationwide lockdowns and other measures implemented to slow the spread of covid19 prevented seasonal pathogens from circulating giving people less opportunity to build up immunity against these microorganisms a phenomenon known as immunity debt said francois Bellou, a computational biologist at university college london uh, quote, since China experienced a far longer and harsher lockdown than essentially any other country on Earth, it was anticipated these lockdown exit waves could be substantial in China, said Balu. Um, so, yeah, printed as though it was lockdowns all along. Um, it's not just Francois Balu, though. According to a stat news piece from November 24th, immunity debt is also the WHO's prevailing explanation for what is happening, which is disappointing. Um November 30th, uh, then also news breaks of an outbreak in Ohio of a mystery uh, white lung pneumonia in over 100 kids. And once again, immunity debt is the go-to explanation. Mm -hmm. So here is one local news station's take on it. Quote, the ages of the patients ridge from eight to three. And there are several theories as to why children are more susceptible to the illness. Some suggest it is caused by lockdowns that have weakened the immune system or mask wearing and school closures, leaving children vulnerable during seasonal illnesses, unquote. I bring this up in particular because I want to throw back to something I said much earlier, uh, which is that immunity debt is an idea that can easily be employed in future pandemics to say, remember what we did for COVID, what little we did for COVID. Uh, Well, we can't possibly do that again. Um, And sure enough, here is right-wing malcontent Charlie Kirk tweeting about this same news, quote, CDC officials are saying of the incident in Ohio, nothing is out of the ordinary, but according to a county health official, not only is this above the county average, it also meets the Ohio Department of Health definition of an outbreak. Just in time for election season, whatever is going on, never again, and do not comply, unquote. On the unwinding front, over 11 million people have lost Medicaid so far. When all is said and done with Medicaid unwinding, a total of up to 24 million people could lose their social safety net health insurance, including 7 million kids will be uh, following this process and future coverage uh, on the show as new information comes in. And finally, to wrap out November, we can have one, just one piece of good news as a treat. November 29th, Henry Kissinger dead. (laughs) Yes. Rest rest in piss. Just in time for our year interview episode. Yeah. Um, so this brings us to the end of our timeline for now. Fuck, Artie. Mm. Wow. Oh, Jesus, man. 
it's staggering to to see it dry up over the course of the year. Yeah. Actually, yeah, mm-hmm. it really is. Huh. It's really um evident. I don't know. It's it's very blatant how it just is everything's turned down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I say that's like the lights go out. Mm. In this. I mean, I think if I could, if you don't mind me saying something first, I guess as we kind of like wrap this out. Yeah, um, I need to process yeah. for mm-hmm. a sec, anyways. I feel like I feel like I didn't know. In a sense, I feel like I, I don't know how to end this one, mm. or like I didn't like because it's so difficult to say what happens from here. I mean, we can make de- we can make demands, and we will obviously. Um, not maybe not necessarily on this like episode, but I mean in general, mm-hmm. collectively, you know, we're all going to continue to make our demands we have to also continue to live with like our collective responsibility to protect each other um you know to keep each other safe and like you know i think the so much of the organizing work that's happened even just in the last year is testament to that like amazing mass block work and a, a bunch of stuff there could be more obviously i hope that if um you know i hope this spurs some people to like join up with some stuff like that um but in terms of looking back at what happened kind of the level of the federal government looking at the state and state actions um this last year i mean it's like very easy to be devastated um the end of the public health emergency was a huge blow as was like so many of the events that led up to like the point where they were able to end the public health emergency with kind of a whimper um and so many of those events happened before like 2023 even began but i think like you know, as a result, I think the thing that I've been thinking about the most is this thing that we've like alluded to a couple of times now, which is like how to put it like we've had this conversation a little bit amongst ourselves um, that it's sort of, it's just it's difficult because so many of the policies that were left to undo, they've now just been undone. And so like in terms of mm-hmm. stuff to for so much of the last couple of years of the COVID response has been like a dialectic in some sense between what is happening in kind of like one camp that is the like sociological production of it's over camp. And then in like, you know, our world or the, the world of people who organize around, you know, COVID advocacy. And there's, it's much, it's much more groundless now. Yeah. In a sense, the stakes are still there. Everything is all in a, in a sense, all the arguments, all the things are like the, the same, but to an extent, I mean, the Biden administration, not just the Biden administration, but all the like all the adjunct, you know, mouthpieces of the end of the pandemic, whether that's, you know, um, people like Jaw now outside of the White House, but mm-hmm. having but formerly been part of it, or whether that's like clowns like David Leonhardt or Francois Ballou or whoever, like they don't have to say anything anymore. Right. And that's the point. I mean, I think the thing my big takeaway from this is, you know, even when the state is acting against society when it's acting and it's acting legibly it does help to solve a collective action problem it does help to coordinate things simply by telegraphing what it's doing or not doing it creates a um an object you know a narrative a a common focal point to to organize around mm-hmm. when it ceases to make its activity legible um, you go back to a more fundamental uh, collective action problem, which is, you know, a, a major uh, vector of disease uh, becomes a disaggregated 
thing that people experience as, uh, as individuals. And so, I mean, I actually, this is where, yeah, I think we're beginning to see what it looks like when people have to organize and coordinate that kind of information production uh, and the creation of focal points themselves. But I, I think the whole phase here is defined by that, again, even when the state's not necessarily, you know, acting to protect society, uh, you know, if as long as it's sort of like being clear about what it's doing, it does help to create some kind of uh, sense of possibility for what people can do. And so now that's where I think that's where we are uh, politically. I think people are trying to figure out what you do in the absence of a, you know, a broad, um, you know, narrative. And and I guess the fortunate thing, one way of, you know, uh, one resource is like, this is not the first time that, uh, you know, a government has decided to ignore uh, something really important that's affecting people's lives. Um, and which, and, you know, it's not the first time that people have had to kind of organize and coordinate that kind of thing for themselves. And so there's like, there is, I think, a res, you know, historical reservoir to draw on here, but it's, it's still, you know, uh, the, the winding down, not just of all the protections, but all of the, uh, you know, I, I think collective action capacity is, is it's a dispiriting thing to watch. And, and it does leave me with, you know, no clear sense of what one even takes away. But I, I do think that's sort of, it's important to just take stock of that as a, a political um, starting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something about like always how helpful it is to sequence out, you know, the, what, what otherwise is a series of, you know, media reportages and events and policy decisions to which we're all reacting in real time. And part of why it's helpful to, to sit down, you know, in this kind of recap format and just ponder it is to, to see that sequence. And I guess connected to what you're just saying, like, I was just thinking about like how, what it takes to produce less so maybe the, uh, a rhetoric or discourse of inevitability, but the actual feeling of inevitability. Mm. And mm-hmm. so much of what I think inevitability, like often the discourse of inevitability from this kind of political administration is technocratic. We're doing all the things. Don't worry, experts are on it. This is the way it has to play out. Well, da, da, da. But, but the feeling of inevitability is much more like a feeling of exhaustion and despair. This sense of, oh, okay, all of these things are now happening. And... Um, you know, I, I, I sort of feel powerless uh, because it's all been downloaded onto me as an individual. And, and I think that that, like, just, I was just thinking about how that feeling slowly emerges when you sequence these things out. It's just like stacking little bits here and there. Um, but, but part of what that, the feeling version of inevitability is trying to do exactly is like, demobilize, um, depoliticize, isolate, um, and just actually make people exhausted, upset, fed up, and unsure what to do. Um, but, but in some ways, I think precisely because I think the other riddle maybe, you know, for, for all of us in the death panel world is like, we have also been talking about (laughs) this trajectory for so long um, in some ways, I guess I was sort of wrestling with at the end of, of, of listening, like, oh, okay, wait, a, a really profound shift has happened. And I was like feeling that kind of like um, despair moment. And I was like, okay, but that that doesn't necessarily like change the core 
political demands and critiques uh, mm-hmm. that have been guiding, you know, this coverage and this this analysis of the pandemic all along. And and in that sense, I think there's something about resisting that that feeling of inevitability um, that is important in political, which is about saying like, okay. Yeah, things are are changed materially by a lack of data or a lack of coverage. Um, it's it's harder to, you know, it's harder to to have a kind of sense of what's going on and where we are. But uh, we've also been like, you know, talking about and preparing and you know, thinking and and organizing for years. Right, that's another version of year four, and so like. You know, in some ways, I was just kind of thinking like, ah, there are some 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 important evergreens here that bring us back to you know the kind of core set of demands, and and now it's like challenging to have to make those demands without an obvious, um, mm-hmm. yeah, an obvious sort of singular um, target policy target or you know a media target to hold on to, but but that doesn't really change the task in some ways. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of it is different, but but in some ways the political task, like you know, not not remains the same, right? But like we haven't lost that. Yeah, right. I totally agree right. with you, Abby. Do you want to go next, and I can take the annoying task of going last? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't really, ha- I don't really have anything to say that I haven't already said. Um, and I don't know. I'm really resonating with what with what you said, Jules, and just personally, I've been trying to kind of anchor myself to this understanding of like, yeah, the way that I feel has certainly changed. A lot of really consequential stuff has changed um, at the national level, but I don't know the reasons why I do this are still the same reasons they've always been. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I even said, I think I even said it might have been at the end of COVID year three last year that like where I anticipated things were going to go in the upcoming year was that, you know, COVID was going to become somewhat less exceptional. I think that we have, I mean, Artie's done a fantastic job of of Mm -hmm. charting, you know, the project of making that the case and making sure that we all feel that, um, but what that means to me is like, okay, you know, so, so COVID's not exceptional. It's, it's in the private market. It's, you know, it's thrown into this, yeah, just like churning maw of like the American healthcare system, just like everything else. And what kind of like anchored me at the end of last year, I think is kind of the same thing, which is that like, we are still, you know what I mean? Like we are still fighting capitalist healthcare, like we are still fighting for health and COVID actually remains a huge part of that, right? Even as it's being hidden from us and normalized and and rationalized away. And so I guess, I don't know if I have any kind of like hope, it's that Mm. this project of like invisibilizing COVID on the national level does not mean that it becomes invisibilized at the level of like, I don't know, organizing work or whatever. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is that I'm, I'm hopeful that through the like transformation of how we think about and treat COVID, we are also allowing COVID to transform how we think about the political economy of health and what health mm-hmm. justice actually looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think last year my takeaway was like, much more warm and fuzzy, you know, it was like, 
you know, ACT UP didn't form until seven years into the HIV AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. <laughs> being officially recognized. <laughs> um, or, you know, don't despair, it's not too late. And I think I have a less fuzzy, but a more concrete takeaway this year in a strange sense that's completely different from what I thought I was going to come away from this with, which is always a good sign (laughs) to revise your expectations. But what I feel like I've just actually had proven to myself, which is something I think I knew and I thought about and I gestured at, but we really just had materially demonstrated is like, Jules, as you're saying, like how inevitability is constructed, right? And Mm -hmm. um, just the sheer volume required to do that. Mm. And I think that that is a tremendous lesson for those of us fighting for liberation of all kinds to take. You know, I think often we could be searching for like the right line and the right written piece or the right citation to try and convince someone to start caring about COVID, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, you know, when you're writing about COVID, you're like, am I going to be able to do it? You know, am I going to be convincing? Can I get my point across? Because we're up against so much. And it's like, the point is actually that you can never get to the point to be as fucking belligerent as Vinay Prasad saying something like, do not test, do not tell the school. If your kid is sick, do not tell your employer, make complete, you know, like just replete with typos, you know, just a fucking mess, right? Like you only get to that point through just massive echo, massive repetition, right? Uh, Like it needs to be something uh. that comes you know, we have to be like producing, I think, the same type of like work product that can be like disseminated and reproduced from so many different people. Right. Like if we want to actually meet the moment, I think we look at the lesson of how, you know, the end of the pandemic has been sociologically produced over the last couple of years, basically from, you know, week three forward. And we say, OK, well, now we have some sort of sense of what the volume might be required in our current media landscape and our current iteration of the, you know, state that we're under, the United States, like what volume might be required to normalize something, right? What volume might be required to to engage consent at a, at that kind of level, right? And and it's actually staggeringly, you know, difficult I think to have convinced people to give up, right? We have had to be assaulted with some of the most heinous takes over and over and over again. Don't care about people who are vulnerable. It's not your problem over and over and over again. So, you know, this is how, these are the kind of values that we're being conditioned towards right now. Right. And I think my takeaway and my lesson that I learned this year is, you know, there's no one, (laughs) there's no one thing that's going to work. There's no one point at which people are going to suddenly back on COVID, that is going to take just as much work to build back up as it took to build it down, Mm. right? Mm. And as we're building that up, how do we build towards not something that just responds only to COVID, but that's forward-looking enough to be able to be forward-looking in the same way that the deconstruction of COVID's risk was, right? Which is towards not responding to another pandemic. So Mm -hmm. I think that that, surprisingly for me, was like the biggest thing that I feel like I was hit with today. Mm. Are y'all okay if I uh, take the final word here? All right. Just to wrap out, as I was going through this, I thought that maybe the most appropriate place um, to end, the the best thing that I could think of is actually something that um, 
sometimes especially with stuff like this it's like you've already had the idea and you just kind of need to circle back and repeat yourself kind of like b was saying actually in terms of um being okay with just like the repetition but um i want to just read a really brief snippet from something that b and i wrote in um march which was a essay called 1200 days um that came out in in these times that was about the end of the public health emergency which then was like you know, a little over a month away. Um, and so we wrote, as we near the conclusion of the pandemic's first 1200 days, organizing towards a more collective pandemic response is set to become even more difficult. With responsibility for public health and the ongoing pandemic increasingly shifted off of the state and onto the private market, the number of actors we will have to target for demands will be increasingly dispersed. Federal, state, and local governments will have a renewed list of private actors on whom to deflect blame. Health insurance companies, pharmacy chains, hospital groups, pharmaceutical companies, and employers. All these entities are powerful and widely loathed stakeholders in U.S. political life, but the scope of their power is shaped by the state. The current plans to privatize COVID amount to an expansion of the power of those groups. We have been on this trajectory of fragmentation for some time. Many of us have gotten so used to being on the back foot in COVID advocacy that it can become difficult to imagine otherwise. Where once it was common to see demands even from centrist and moderate public health professionals that we pay people to stay home, many have dropped that assertion, wary of its association with an economic quote-unquote shutdown, itself a demand many of us once embraced. Many in public health have altogether dropped the term mask mandate, preferring to politely ask that the CDC universally recommend masking. Soon, when once the federal government was the central target for us to pressure to expand its paltry vaccination efforts, we will instead be caught up demanding Pfizer reduce the price of its vaccine or of Paxlovid on the private market. Organizers in individual states will likely have to press their state governments to expand access to COVID testing, vaccine, and treatments under Medicaid. And so much activity, both for COVID and its longer-term impacts in long COVID, may slowly mold itself in the image of the abysmal charity industrial complex model that permeates and compromises so much disease-based advocacy work in the United States. We share this bleak assessment of a possible future not to demobilize but to agitate. As we come to the conclusion of these first 1200 days, we will have to make demands that go far beyond many of the platitudes that have become mainstays of pandemic-era discourse. It is not enough to say we must follow the science in hopes that some putatively unadulterated truth will sway what are nakedly political and economic decisions. It is not enough to wish for soul-searching within the discipline of public health because public health does not in and of itself outlay a program for political action. It merely gives us a set of tools and operations with which to understand the world. To build a better future together, we will have to commit to setting aside the false binary between the healthy and the medically vulnerable that many of us carry even into spaces of radical and anti-capitalist work and instead acknowledge our collective vulnerability. So that's it. I think that's a great place to end it. Gang, so glad we could all finally record together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Patrons, as always, thank you so much for your support. Um, Literally none of what you've just listened to today would be possible without it. Um, To support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. 
you'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode, an entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And when we do massive shit like this, you'll get it early. (laughs) And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order Jules's new book coming this January called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. No, no, no.
Oh, oh, oh.